He's taking meetings with Russians to get additional stuff. This tells you everything about Jared. They were looking for the picture of Hillary Clinton taking the bag of cash from Putin. That's his maturity level. These were the words of Stephen K. Bannon, the former chief strategist and 2016 presidential campaign manager for former United States President Donald Trump. According to Alan Smith's Business Insider article titled, Steve Bannon Blames Jared Kushner for Trump's Russia Problems. This tells you everything about Jared. Jared Kushner, of course, is Trump's son-in-law and close advisor. The article was written on December 21st, 2017. Even back then, numerous Trump associates were already getting into legal trouble. Special Counsel Robert Mueller had already indicted Trump's 2016 presidential campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, as indicated in a political article titled, Full Text, Paul Manafort Indictment, and Trump's 2016 deputy campaign manager, Rick Gates, as indicated in Dylan Matthews' Vox article titled, Read the Unsealed Indictment Against Trump Campaign Chair Paul Manafort. And... Trump's 2016 presidential campaign advisor, George Papadopoulos, has secretly pled guilty to lying to federal agents regarding his contacts with Russians associated with the Kremlin, as recounted in Julia Ainsley, Tracy Connor, Tom Winter, and Ken Delanian's NBC News article titled, Ex-Trump Advisor George Papadopoulos Pleads Guilty in Mueller's Russia Probe. Through all these indictments, Bannon remained relatively clear of any substantive public scrutiny, even as other Trump associates, such as Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner, were slandered by members of the press. Bannon even called out the illegal and morally questionable actions of some of his acquaintances, admitting that Kushner played a role in the widespread Russian collusion scandal, and, as recounted in David Smith's Guardian article titled, Trump Tower Meeting with Russians Treasonous, Bannon says in Explosive Book, Bannon described the meeting that Donald Trump Jr., Trump's own son, took with several Russian government associates during the 2016 presidential campaign as treasonous and unpatriotic. However, Bannon has finally come under legal scrutiny, and according to CNN's video titled Steve Bannon Charged with Fraud and Border Wall Fundraising, has been arrested and charged by prosecutors with conspiracy to commit wire fraud and money laundering. This adds Bannon to the growing list of Trump associates and employees who have been arrested and charged with criminal activities. However, what makes the charges against Bannon different from those charges levied against people like Papadopoulos is that the charges levied against Bannon do not have all that much of a connection to Mueller or the investigation into the 2016 Trump presidential campaign's possible collusion with the Russian government officials and associates. The charges against Bannon have been largely financial, seemingly implicating him in a simple get-rich-quick scheme, rather than a treasonous and unpatriotic, wide-reaching conspiracy to interfere in the results of the 2016 presidential election. Even though Bannon is not being charged in a very large conspiracy as of this moment, there is ample evidence already available to the American public to suggest that Bannon was indeed a part of the 2016 Trump presidential campaign's conspiracy to collude with the Russian government officials and associates in an effort to interfere with the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. 
By the end of 2017, Bannon was hinting at Kushner's role in the conspiracy to interfere in the 2016 presidential election, saying that Kushner was taking meetings with Russians in order to get additional stuff. However, it is more than likely that Bannon himself was involved in this very same conspiracy. And it is imperative, now more than ever, that the American people do not discount Bannon's alleged criminal and conspiratorial behavior as merely just being a part of just one greedy border wall get-rich-quick scheme to acquire large sums of money. Bannon, as it would seem, also may have taken part in a much broader a more scandalous scheme, the one he always seemed quick to separate himself from, one that may have tipped the results of the 2016 presidential election in favor of Trump, as well as another one designed to keep Trump in power following his subsequent loss in the 2020 election. Four years ago today, I released my very first podcast for Politics with Paxton, an episode titled The Destruction of the Administrative State. This podcast focused on the subversive nature of Bannon's role within the White House and the effect that it had on his peers. In many ways, this podcast, The Chief Strategist, will serve as something of a sequel to the destruction of the administrative state. This time, focusing on breaking down the myth that Bannon is somehow some sort of populist hero. On the contrary, as I will posit in this podcast, Bannon was Trump's chief grifter. I am Paxton Phillips, and this is Politics with Paxton. According to the book Fear by Bob Woodward, when Paul Manafort was the campaign chairman of Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, he invited Bannon to his Trump Tower penthouse in order to examine the potential repercussions of a news story about him coming out from the New York Times that was scheduled to be released online that very night, titled, Secret Ledger in Ukraine lists cash for Donald Trump's campaign chief. The New York Times story, written by Andrew Kramer, Barry Meyer, and Mike McIntyre, raised attention to Manafort's work in Ukraine. Ukrainian government investigators, as it is revealed in the article, were untangling a corrupt network that they believed to be used to influence elections and loot Ukrainian assets during the presidential administration of former Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych, when those investigations discovered secret records that contained both Manafort's name and some of the companies that Manafort has attempted to do business with. The article has somewhat famously asserted that, quote, handwritten ledgers show $12.7 million in undisclosed cash payments designated for Mr. Manafort from Mr. Yanukovych's pro-Russian political party from 2007 to 2012, according to Ukraine's newly formed National Anti-Corruption Bureau. Investigators assert that the disbursements were part of an illegal off-the-book system whose recipients also included election officials, end quote. At the time, the New York Times article explained, criminal prosecutors were looking into several shell companies that various members of Yanukovych's inner circle used in order to finance their rather extravagant lifestyles. One of these transactions that these shell companies engaged in was an $18 million deal, quote, to sell Ukrainian cable television assets to a partnership put together 
by Mr. Manafort and a Russian oligarch, Oleg Deripaska, a close ally of President Vladimir V. Putin. End quote. Manafort, as I detailed in my podcast episode titled To Get Whole, initially benefited from working for Yanukovych. In the book Collusion by Luke Harding, it is explained, however, that Yanukovych, who Manafort had dutifully served and helped get elected president of Ukraine, was coaxed into fleeing Ukraine in the 2014 Ukrainian Revolution. Harding details how, even though Yanukovych was not in any legitimate physical danger in 2014, conflicts between Ukrainian protesters, tired of Yanukovych's corrupt and selfish leadership, the Ukrainian police, and paid pro-Yanukovych thugs grew increasingly violent. Yanukovych decided to flee Ukraine by helicopter to Russia, taking $32 billion with him. Yanukovych's removal from power quickly marked the end of Manafort's work in Ukraine. In fact, Harding explains that Manafort stopped visiting Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, in late 2015. Kramer, Meyer, and McIntyre's New York Times article detailed how, quote, an examination of Mr. Manafort's activities offers new details of how he mixed politics and business out of public view and benefited from powerful interests now under scrutiny by the new government in Kiev, end quote. Manafort's corrupt dealings in Ukraine were arguably bound to come to light at some point. He had played a prominent role, according to Harding, in transforming Yanukovych into a presidential candidate that could actually get elected president. And just several years later, Manafort was seemingly trying very similar tactics in order to turn Trump into a candidate that could be elected president. Manafort was in the spotlight of both the United States and Ukraine, and the overlap of his work in these countries was what ultimately led to his political career coming to a screeching halt. According to Woodward, when Bannon arrived in Manafort's penthouse, Manafort told Bannon, quote, listen, everybody tells me you really know media, end quote. Bannon, who had been the chief of the news organization Breitbart News, told Manafort that, quote, I run a right-wing website. I know advocacy, end quote. Manafort quickly responded by telling Bannon that, quote, I need you to look at something for me, end quote. It was at that moment that Manafort handed Bannon a copy of the draft version of the New York Times story written by Kramer, Meyer, and McIntyre, which had detailed so many of the financial schemes that Manafort had been a part of while he was working in Ukraine. According to Woodward, quote, Bannon read about 10 paragraphs in, it was a kill shot. It was over for Manafort, end quote. Manafort told Bannon that, Quote, my lawyer told me not to cooperate, end quote. Bannon rather astutely told Manafort that, quote, you should fire your lawyer, end quote. Manafort remarked that, quote, I'm thinking about it, end quote. Bannon told Manafort that, quote, you've got to call Trump. Go see him face to face. If this comes out in the paper and he doesn't know about it, it's lights out for you. How do you even take $12.7 million in cash? End quote. Manafort vaguely told Bannon, according to Woodward, that, quote, It's all lies. I had expenses. End quote. Bannon presses Manafort for information, asking him, quote, What do you mean? End quote. Manafort clarified that, quote, I'm just a general consultant. 
I've got guys. It was all paid to the guys. I didn't take 500,000 out of there, end quote. Bannon reiterated that, quote, that's all lost. It's not laid out in the article. It's, you got $12.7 million in cash, okay? End quote. In the book, Let Trump Be Trump, by Trump's 2016 presidential campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, and Trump's 2016 deputy campaign manager, David Bossie, Bannon's meeting with Manafort is further explained. According to Lewandowski and Bossy, Bannon was immediately convinced that Manafort was in tremendous trouble after reading part of Kramer, Meyer, and McIntyre's article. Please note that in the following quote, I have replaced any expletives from Lewandowski and Bossy's book with the word blank. Bannon apparently thought that, quote, it was an explosive page one story, and even if the story wasn't true, it was in the blanking New York Times. At the very least, it would leave a mark, end quote. Woodward details the immediate fallout of Kramer, Meyer, and McIntyre's article, writing that, quote, as Bannon predicted, Trump was apoplectic. He'd had no heads up, end quote. Lewandowski and Bossy detailed the well-publicized event of Manafort being forced out of the campaign, and Bannon and Kellyanne Conway, Trump's presidential counselor, replacing him. Bannon's Trump Tower encounter with Manafort, and the apparent inevitability that he felt about Manafort's firing from the Trump 2016 presidential campaign, was not the only time that he criticized Manafort's corrupt activities, internally or otherwise. Following media coverage of Bannon's comments in which he stated that it was treasonous and unpatriotic for Trump campaign officials to have met with Russian government associates in Trump Tower with the promise of getting compromising information on Trump's 2016 presidential rival Hillary Clinton, according to the USA Today article titled, Bannon says that he meant to blame Manafort. Those comments were not aimed at Don Jr. by Nicole Guadiano. Bannon apparently clarified to the American people that he intended to blame Manafort for the meeting with Russian government associates, such as Natalia Veselnitskaya, in Trump Tower during the 2016 presidential race, not Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr. In a public statement that is documented in Guadiano's article, Bannon declared that, quote, my comments were aimed at Paul Manafort, a seasoned campaign professional with experience and knowledge of how the Russians operate. He should have known they are duplicitous, cunning, and not our friends. To reiterate, those comments were not aimed at Don Jr. End quote. What is ironic about Bannon's encounter with Manafort in Trump Tower shortly before his firing as Trump's campaign chairman and his future attacks on Manafort's character for having taken a meeting with Veselnitskaya and other Russian government associates in exchange for compromising information on Clinton is that, as it has turned out, Bannon has actually been guilty of very similar offenses and crimes to those offenses and crimes that he has seemed to criticize Manafort for. Bannon's recent indictment actually charges him for committing very similar crimes to those that Manafort was arrested for. Bannon, as recounted in Aaron Katursky and Alexander Malin's ABC News article titled, Former Trump strategist Steve Bannon indicted for fraud as part of crowdfunding campaign to build border wall, Bannon was charged with money laundering and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. These financial crimes are rather similar to the very crimes that Manafort was found guilty of. 
Manafort was also charged with money laundering and fraud crimes, as recounted in Kevin Johnson's USA Today article titled, Judge Orders Manafort to Jail While Awaiting Money Laundering and Fraud Trials. Although, as is recounted in Darren Samuelson, Matthew Choi, and Joss Gerstein's political article titled, Manafort Gets 47 Months in Prison for Financial Fraud, these were not the only crimes that Manafort was held legally responsible for. It was a kill shot. Bannon had surmised about the effect that Kramer, Meyer, and McIntyre's article would have on Manafort's role as Trump's campaign chairman. It was an explosive, one-page story, Bannon had concluded. It was all over for Manafort, Bannon had thought. Well, one may wonder if it is finally over for Bannon. Manafort's role in the Trump-Russia collusion scandal has also come to the public's attention. Not only was Manafort a participant in the Trump Tower meeting with Veselnitskaya, but, as, it, as is explained in Tim Mack's NPR article titled, Senate Report Former Trump Aide Paul Manafort Shared Campaign Info with Russia, a Senate intelligence report has concluded that Manafort, quote, briefed Russian intelligence officer Konstantin Kalimnik on the campaign's polling data and how the Trump campaign sought to beat Hillary Clinton in the presidential election. Manafort's connection with Kalimnik was a grave counterintelligence threat, the report reads, adding that it found evidence the Russian intelligence officer may have been linked to the Russian government's efforts to hack and leak Democratic Party emails. End quote. Bannon's involvement in the Trump-Russia collusion scandal has not been focused on by the mainstream media as much as Manafort's involvement in the scandal. However, as I will detail in this podcast, Bannon played a role, one which has gone dangerously under the radar of many political analysts and pundits in this Trump-Russia collusion scandal that is arguably more important than ever to focus on, considering the influence that Bannon has gained with his War Room podcast series. It is important that Bannon is not remembered in history as just a fraudster and an opportunist, for that would be undercutting his impact on American history. Bannon, history should remember, was a potential active participant in one of the most monumental scandals in American history, one in which members of Trump's 2016 presidential campaign coordinated with associates and officials of the Russian government in order to tip the scales of the 2016 presidential election in Trump's favor. However, it is still important to discuss the fraudulent activities that Bannon was indicted for because while they may pale in comparison to the potential role that he played in the Trump-Russia collusion scandal, they are still serious criminal charges. Additionally, it may be advantageous to learn about the nature of Bannon's scheming behavior before delving into his role in one of the most important political schemes in American history. Isaac Chotner's article in The New Yorker titled The Narcissism and Ego That Led to Steve Bannon's Arrest quotes the acting United States Attorney in Manhattan, Audrey Strauss, with saying that Bannon and three of his indicted associates, quote, defrauded hundreds of thousands of donors capitalizing on their interest in funding a border wall to raise millions of dollars under the false pretense that all of that money would be spent on construction, end quote. Bannon and his associates developed an entire online fundraising campaign 
known as We Build the Wall, that Bannon and his associates pledged would only be used for funding the construction of a border wall between the United States and Mexico. Although Bannon and his associates promised their donors that they would not use the donated money for any of their own endeavors, Bannon, according to the charges, ended up acquiring over a million dollars from We Build the Wall and was able to funnel money to his associates as well. Bannon, according to Aaron Katursky in Alexander Mallon's ABC News article titled Former Trump Strategist Steve Bannon Indicted for Fraud as Part of Crowdfunding Campaign to Build Border Wall, had publicly declared regarding We Build the Wall that, quote, we're a volunteer organization, end quote. Bannon and his associates told the public that they would not take a penny of their donations to use for their own personal endeavors. If the charges are true, this was apparently a lie. The proposed border wall between the United States and Mexico was a central feature in Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. However, its prominence in Trump's political world has arguably diminished since Trump became president. Bannon has apparently been privy to discussions regarding Trump's proposed border wall between the United States and Mexico since its inception. Sam Numberg, Trump's longtime associate who worked on his 2016 presidential campaign and came up with the idea of a border wall between the United States and Mexico, as recounted in a Business Insider article written by Mia Jankowicz titled, Sam Numberg, the advisor who came up with the Mexico wall idea, says he still wants to see it built and that Trump would kill Biden in a debate on border issues, has said as much. According to Joshua Green, in his book, Devil's Bargain, quote, Inside Trump's circle, the power of illegal immigration to manipulate popular sentiment was readily apparent, and his advisors brainstormed methods for keeping their attention-addled boss on message. They needed a trick, a mnemonic device. In the summer of 2014, they found one that clicked. Roger Stone and I came up with the idea of the wall and we talked to Steve about it, said Numberg. It was to make sure he talked about immigration, end quote. The Steve that Numberg and Roger Stone, another one of Trump's convicted longtime associates, talked to was, of course, Steve Bannon. This goes to show how Bannon has known about the concept of a border wall between the United States and Mexico for at least six years. He was talking with Numberg and Stone at the very beginning of Trump's 2016 presidential campaign about this influential concept. It is unclear if Bannon, Numberg, or Stone ever suspected, however, how enticing the idea of this border wall would be to Trump supporters. Green recounts how, quote, initially, Trump seemed indifferent to the idea, but in January 2015, he tried it out at the Iowa Freedom Summit, a presidential cattle call put on by David Bossie's group, Citizens United. One of his pledges was, I will build a wall, and the place went nuts, said Numberg. Warming to the concept, Trump waited a beat, and then added a flourish that brought down the house. Nobody, he said. Builds like Trump. End quote. One might believe that Bannon would have something of a sentimental attachment to the idea of a border wall since he was one of the very first people in Trump's orbit to discuss how to politically use the idea of a border wall. 
And all indications from Trump's 2016 presidential campaign seem to point to the idea that Bannon did actually care about building a border wall and ensuring harsher and stricter immigration laws. In fact, when Trump announced his candidacy for President of the United States in June of 2015, Bannon, Green recounts, quote, was cackling, practically giddy over what he had just witnessed. He still couldn't believe it. It was June 16, 2015. Trump had just glided down the Trump Tower escalator with Melania in tow, announced his entry into the presidential race, and then proceeded to unload a mind-bending, mostly improvised, 45-minute rant during which he casually referred to Mexican immigrants as rapists and criminals, end quote. The fact of the matter is, is as Stuart Anderson rather skillfully points out in his Forbes article titled Where the Idea for Donald Trump's Wall Came From, quote, Donald Trump's plan to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border did not come from security analysis following years of study or through evidence that a wall would reduce illegal immigration. Amazingly, for something so central to the current U.S. president, the wall came about as a mnemonic device thought up by a pair of political consultants to remind Donald Trump to talk about illegal immigration, end quote. One might imagine that this would make the border wall an attractive concept for Bannon. Bannon did, in fact, seem to be rather excited about Trump's immigration stance, including his proposed border wall. According to Green, Trump, quote, invited Breitbart News' Matthew Boyle up to his 26th floor office immediately following his announcement for an exclusive interview and some extra anti-immigrant, anti-establishment jawboning, just to ensure that the Republican base heard his message loud and clear. They heard it. And they loved it. Bannon, who was ecstatic that Trump had not softened his message now that he was truly in the race, splashed the news across Breitbart. Then, he got busy arranging a surreal visit Trump would make to the U.S.-Mexico border a few weeks hence, one that would further affix his anti-immigrant identity at the center of his presidential campaign. End quote. The fact that Bannon, who was not even technically a part of Trump's 2016 presidential campaign at this point, was playing such an active role in trying to broadcast Trump's anti-immigration stance seems to prove that Bannon legitimately cared about building Trump's border wall and enacting his strict immigration reforms. In fact, Bannon was even actively working, as Green stated, to arrange a meeting that Trump would make to the border between the United States and Mexico before he had even officially joined Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. Bannon's authentic adoration for Trump's anti-immigration message seemed to be one of the core facets of his political career. Bannon's authenticity is something that his political acquaintances have attested to, including Lewandowski, as Green documented. According to Green, Lewandowski apparently declared that, quote, throughout the campaign, long before Steve actually joined the campaign, he was active through Breitbart, but also by providing very important and unsolicited advice, end quote. Lewandowski goes on to say, according to Green, that Bannon, quote, would call Mr. Trump or he would call me and say, hey, here's a recommendation. 
We talk to Steve a lot. I think for Mr. Trump, authenticity is the most important thing. Steve's authentic. His success financially gave him the freedom to not have to do things he doesn't want to do, not shave, not wear a tie. That's unheard of in the world of Trump. But he's achieved a remarkable amount of personal success, and that matters a lot to Trump. End quote. Clearly, Trump, at least initially, did really respect and appreciate Bannon. Whether it was due to the personal success that he was able to achieve, as Lewandowski seems to believe, or whether it was because Bannon played a critical role in helping Trump get elected President of the United States. On the back cover of Devil's Bargain, Green even asserts that, quote, In the days after the election, the world wondered, how could this happen? Many people still wonder. No shortage of scapegoats and malefactors were offered up by way of explanation. James Comey, the Russians, the media, fake news, sexism, the list went on and on. Yet none was entirely satisfying or big enough to encompass the scale of the shock or capable of unwinding the sense of dislocation so many people felt when they woke to the realization that something so seemingly unlikely, so utterly extreme as Trump's election could happen in plain view of everyone, end quote. Green went on to articulate that, quote, even now, there's a sense that some vital piece of the puzzle is missing. That piece is Steve Bannon, end quote. Regardless of what factors ultimately influenced Trump to come to appreciate Bannon's work, Trump respected Bannon enough to bring him into the White House as the White House chief strategist. As White House chief strategist, Bannon was reportedly the force behind some of the most dramatic executive orders that Trump enacted in his first weeks as president. As recounted by Zach Beechump in his Vox article, Steve Bannon the Trump advisor who helped craft the Muslim ban, explained. Beechump explains how the most notable executive order that Trump enacted during his first weeks as president that Bannon successfully pushed for was an order that banned all visa holders and immigrants from seven Muslim-majority countries from entering the United States for 90 days. Quote, all refugee emissions for 120 days and all Syrian refugees indefinitely. According to CNN's Evan Perez and Pamela Brown, Bannon personally spearheaded the order and then overrode objections from the Department of Homeland Security that would have softened it somewhat, end quote. Clearly, when Bannon entered the Trump administration, he did not abandon any of his harsh and strict immigration values. The Muslim ban, as it has widely come to be known as, has become one of the most infamous actions taken by Trump while he was in office as president, and has arguably come to symbolize the stark moral contrast between the seemingly outright xenophobia of the Trump administration and previous presidential administrations. Bannon, even according to Beechamp's article, attempted to ensure that the Muslim ban's restrictions would be as strict as possible and would not be softened in any way by the Department of Homeland Security. 
Bannon's role in the implementation of the infamous Muslim ban was one of the most notable examples of how Bannon, while serving as White House chief strategist, would seemingly work tirelessly to ensure that Trump's campaign promises, including stricter immigration laws and regulations, would be carried out. Bannon's interest in carrying out Trump's campaign promises certainly seemed to be quite authentic. Authenticity was one of the key ideas that Lewandowski used to summarize Trump's appreciation and respect for Bannon. And most of Bannon's time in the White House seemed to indicate that he was staying true to his beliefs and was remaining quite authentic. In fact, according to Matthew Nussbaum, Lily Mihalik, Aidan Quigley, and Nancy Cook's Politico article titled Annotating Steve Bannon's Whiteboard, Bannon had a whiteboard in his office in the White House which listed Trump's campaign promises. Check marks were placed next to the campaign promises which had been fulfilled. Some of the campaign promises that focused on restricting immigration were on the whiteboard, including the promise to build the border wall between the United States and Mexico. Early on in the Trump administration, it seemed as if Bannon's influence was rapidly growing, as is recounted in Beecham's article. Another executive order that Trump enacted gave Bannon a seat on the National Security Council and removed the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the top military commanders in the country, from the council. While Bannon was White House chief strategist, he also played a prominent role in what he called the destruction of the administrative state at the Conservative Political Action Conference, also known as CPAC, on February 23rd, 2017, as I detail in my first podcast episode titled The Destruction of the Administrative State. The idea of the destruction of the administrative state that Bannon publicly presented at CPAC was basically an effort to deregulate many of the agencies in the United States government. However, as I speculated in my first podcast episode, The Destruction of the Administrative State, it seems as if Trump has not only taken efforts to deregulate many of the agencies in the United States government, but has put people in charge of these agencies seemingly in order to work against the very agencies that they were chosen to lead in the first place. Some key examples of government officials that fit this idea of the destruction of the administrative state, as I explained in my first podcast episode, are Scott Pruitt, who was Trump's former administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, as well as Mick Mulvaney, who was Trump's former director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or the CFPB, and of the Office of Management and Budget, or the OMB. Mulvaney, it should be noted, went on to serve as Trump's special envoy to Northern Ireland, as well as Trump's chief of staff later on in the Trump presidency. As I theorized in my first podcast episode, The Destruction of the Administrative State, it seems as if Bannon's influence in the White House was ultimately one of the driving forces of the destruction of the administrative state ideology that consumed many of the government agencies in Trump's administration. I also speculated in my first podcast episode that even though Bannon may no longer be serving in the White House, his associate, Stephen Miller, may, for the remainder of Trump's presidency, kept the idea of the destruction of the administrative state alive. One of the more recent examples of the destruction of the administrative state ideology is one that proves that this is an idea that remained prominent in the Trump administration until its final days. This example is that of Postmaster General Louis DeJoy's handling 
of the Postal Service. In All In with Chris Hayes on August 14th, 2020, White House correspondent Jeff Bennett discussed the predicament that the United States was struggling to overcome, a crisis that raised awareness to the fact that if voters vote by mail in the 2020 presidential election, there would be a good chance that their votes would not be counted as a result of mail-in ballots potentially not arriving in time to be counted. Bennett clarified that the reason why some mail-in ballots might not be counted is because of the budget cuts and the policy changes that DeJoy had been making to the Postal Service, which DeJoy claimed would make the Postal Services more solvent. However, the changes that DeJoy was making to the Postal Service was seemingly an attempt to skew the results of the 2020 presidential election. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson appeared on All In with Chris Hayes and proclaimed that the budget cuts that DeJoy had been making to the Postal Service would not only impact the 2020 presidential election, but that they could also have a negative impact on how quickly prescription drugs are delivered to American citizens safely by mail during the age of the coronavirus. Clearly, DeJoy, as the United States Postmaster General, should have been trying to ensure that the Postal Service operates as smoothly and efficiently as possible. However, DeJoy had been taking active measures to attempt to slow down the Postal Service, it seems. The current Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, accurately pointed out at the time, as recounted in Kevin Bruinger's CNBC article titled, USPS Chief Louis DeJoy agrees to testify before Congress next week. DeJoy's changes to the Postal Service have negatively impacted many American people, especially seniors and veterans. DeJoy's position as Postmaster General is a complete departure from the principles on which the very position of Postmaster General was founded upon. As is explained in Patrick J. Kicker's History.com article titled, How Ben Franklin Established the U.S. Post Office, mail was one of the key connective tissues that held together the American colonies during the Revolutionary War. The 13 American colonies' very survival, as Kigger articulates, depended on mail being delivered as swiftly and efficiently as possible. Shortly after the battles of Lexington and Concord, the Continental Congress called on Benjamin Franklin to create a National Post Service and serve as the first Postmaster General. Unlike DeJoy, Franklin seemed to actually deeply care about the American people that he had been called on to serve. While DeJoy put changes in place at the Postal Service that negatively impacted the efficiency at which mail could be delivered to the American people that desperately needed it, such as veterans and seniors, Franklin actually seemed to want to make a meaningful difference with his position as Postmaster General. As Kigger explains, the author of Benjamin Franklin's Electrical Democracy and a professor of English at Penn State University Carla J. Mulford asserted that, quote, when he was appointed Postmaster General for the American Confederation in 1775, it clearly showed the extent to which he was trusted by American leaders to have Americans' best interests at heart, end quote. This trust that the American Confederation had in Franklin is rather notable considering the lack of trust that certain facets of the current United States government and the American public have in DeJoy. 
Certain current government officials within the United States distrust Joy so much that, as is indicated in Philip Ewing and Alana Wise's NPR article titled Postmaster General Defends His Actions in Acrimonious Marathon House Hearing, DeJoy was summoned before the House of Representatives, quote, amid concerns that his cost-cutting measures have jeopardized the agency's ability to serve Americans. Mail service has slowed across the country, according to internal documents obtained by the House Oversight Committee. But DeJoy denies the slowdowns are part of any attempt to reduce voting by mail this year, end quote. DeJoy, having not earned the trust of much of the United States government as well as the trust of many of the American people, was a stark contrast to the firm trust that the American Confederation placed in Franklin. Before Franklin was appointed as Postmaster General of the American Colonies, he was appointed by the British Crown as Joint Postmaster for all of the 13 colonies, only sharing some authority with Virginia-based printer William Hunter. In this role, Franklin was able to ensure major improvements were made to the Postal Service, such as, according to Kigger, quote, establishing a regular schedule that allowed mail to move efficiently along post roads up and down the eastern seaboard, end quote. Franklin's work in putting mail riders out on the roads at night allowed him to cut the delivery time for a letter from Philadelphia to New York and receive a reply to merely two hours. Franklin's work as postmaster of the 13 American colonies allowed messages to travel more efficiently and quickly throughout these colonies. This is yet again uh, another stark contrast between Franklin and DeJoy. While Franklin used his power to make the Postal Service more efficient and allowed mail to travel throughout the American colonies more quickly, DeJoy has seemingly slowed down the Postal Service and made it more challenging for mail to travel throughout the United States very quickly. DeJoy's actions perfectly fit in the definition of what I defined as the destruction of the administrative state. DeJoy has seemingly thrown away the ideology of Franklin in favor of the ideology of Bannon. This speaks to the power and influence of Bannon, regardless of whether it really was Miller or if it was even Trump who kept the idea of the destruction of the administrative state alive in the Trump administration for as long as that lasted. DeJoy completely abandoned the principles that Franklin, one of the United States' founding fathers, followed as Postmaster General in favor of the same ideology that Pruitt and Mulvaney were following. If Bannon was partially or even totally responsible for the growing trend of government administrators who have worked against the very institutions and agencies that they swore to serve, then that speaks to his powerful influence and commitment. One would think that if Bannon did influence the destruction of the administrative state policies of some of these administrators, such as DeJoy, which seems increasingly possible, he would have been very committed to his goals and his ideology of the destruction of the administrative state and the deregulation of the United States government. There is no hard evidence that Bannon was directly influencing DeJoy. However, 
Given the growing number of government administrators who have been working against the very agencies that they were assigned to lead, a trend which I go into more detail about in my first podcast episode, The Destruction of the Administrative State, as well as Bannon's apparent interest in the destruction of the administrative state ideology and the deregulation of government agencies, it seems increasingly possible that Bannon's ideology of the destruction of the administrative state influenced DeJoy to work against the enshrined goals of the post service that were made quite clear by Franklin. Ultimately, one of the major takeaways from Bannon's potentially major impact on so many government agencies, purposefully or otherwise, is that Bannon has always seemed to be, as Lewandowski described, very authentic. He seemed to have an authentic interest in the destruction of the administrative state, one that has potentially influenced the infamous policies of some of Trump's administrators, such as DeJoy and Pruitt, and, perhaps most notably, Bannon, as I previously articulated, seemed to have had an authentic interest in attempting to get restrictive immigration policies and laws passed while he was serving as White House chief strategist. Overall, Bannon seemed very authentic. One would imagine that Bannon could not have influenced so many government administrators out of an inauthentic and false appreciation for the deregulation of government agencies and the destruction of the administrative state ideology. Bannon even had a whiteboard while he was serving in the White House of of all of Trump's campaign promises, seemingly as a reminder of the work that he and Trump still had to do. One would think that this meant that Bannon sincerely cared about enacting Trump's campaign promises. However, that is why it came as quite a surprise when Bannon used Trump's supporters' authentic desire to construct Trump's proposed border wall between the United States and Mexico, a campaign promise that was on Bannon's whiteboard in order to extort money from Trump supporters and get wealthier. As it is explained in Lachlan Marquet's The Daily Beast article titled, The We Build the Wall Huckster is accused of duping donors. Turns out he planned to sell their data too. Federal prosecutors arrested Bannon and Brian Colfage in August of 2020. Colfage is a triple amputee Air Force veteran and was the head of the We Build the Wall nonprofit that publicly sought to privately finance the construction of a border wall between the United States and Mexico. Federal prosecutors assert that Bannon and Colfage illegally used We Build the Wall in order to make themselves wealthier. Bannon, according to Melissa Quinn's CBS News article titled, Steve Bannon pleads not guilty in scheme to defraud donors to campaign pledging to build border wall, pled not guilty to the charges levied against him of money laundering and wire fraud. Bannon was released on $5 million bond, but has been required to forfeit his passport. Bannon, along with three of his associates, Colfage, Timothy Shia, and Andrew Bodolato have been accused of defrauding hundreds of thousands of people that donated to We Build the Wall that ended up acquiring over $25 million supposedly for building the border wall between the United States and Mexico. Federal prosecutors made it clear that donors to We Build the Wall were repeatedly assured that all of the money that was donated to it would be used to build the border wall. 
These claims and assurances were blatantly false. Bannon, Colfage, and Bodolato apparently may have signed off on these assertions and assurances, well aware that donors would be more inclined to donate to We Build the Wall if they thought that all of their funds donated to the fundraising campaign would be allocated to building the border wall. Quinn articulates that the indictment of Bannon and his associates stated that, quote, some of those donors wrote directly to Colfage, and they did not have a lot of money and were skeptical about an online fundraising campaigns, but they were giving what they could because they trusted Colfage would keep his word about how their donations would be spent. This trust was misplaced. This was not the only time, however, that Colfage tried to use his influence and power to make more money. This seems to have been the first time, though, that Colfage has really had to face serious legal repercussions for his actions. Marquet explains that while Colfage was using We Build the Wall to collect millions of phone numbers and email addresses, Colfage was also coming up with ways that he could use that data he collected to start a Republican fundraising firm. Colfage bragged that the voter contact list in his possession was probably the third largest in Republican politics in an email to a Republican consultant, only surpassed by voter contact lists controlled by Trump and Republican Senator Ted Cruz. Colfage, clearly not willing to allow this potentially very financially lucrative opportunity slip through his fingers, proposed a revenue-sharing agreement in which he would keep 50% of all of the funds raised by groups and campaigns that used his list. One political candidate actually even appears to have actually used Colfage's list. We build the wall general consultant and former Kansas Secretary of State, Chris Kobach. In his ultimately failed 2020 Senate campaign, Kobach sent an email to all of the people on Colfage's list asking for donations. At the time, legal experts told the Daily Beast that Kobach's request for donations, quote, almost certainly violated federal campaign finance laws, either by failing to disclose that the campaign had paid for its use or by con constituting an illegal in-kind contribution from the nonprofit to the campaign. The ethics watchdog group Common Cause subsequently filed legal complaints against both Kobach's campaign and We Build the Wall over the fundraising appeal. End quote. Clearly, Colfage's work with Kobach in his ultimately failed 2020 Senate campaign seems to have been rather illegal. However, it was ultimately part of a scheme of his to profit off of selling candidates, groups, and campaigns, an extensive voter contact list that would allow them to potentially raise a great deal of funds. Of course, the factor that influenced uh, Colfage to participate in this scheme seems to have been the same factor that motivated him to become so heavily involved in We Build the Wall, that being the potential to make more money. The fact that Bannon would be motivated to risk legal consequences in exchange for trying to make money alongside Colfage is a rather shocking surprise. Bannon, from his interactions with Manafort and his work as White House Chief Strategist, seemed to be motivated out of an ideology instead of just purely out of greed. He seemed to criticize Manafort for his greedy nature when he committed very similar crimes to those that got Manafort sent to jail. 
it may make sense why Colfage ended up committing financial crimes in an effort to make more money, but why Bannon played a major part in their scheme is a bit more perplexing. After all, one of Bannon's trademark qualities, as Lewandowski pointed out, was his authenticity. Bannon seemed to deeply care about fulfilling Trump's campaign promises and ensuring stricter border security and immigration. So then, why would Bannon have taken advantage of Trump supporters' authentic desire to build the border wall? There is no clear answer to this as of yet. Perhaps Bannon is not as authentic to his cause and his philosophy as he seemed to profess. After all, as is recounted in Maggie Haberman, William Rashbaum, and Alan Fewer's New York Times article titled, Steve Bannon is charged with fraud in the We Build the Wall campaign, Bannon and his associates, including Colfage, had allegedly promised donors to We Build the Wall that all of the money donated to We Build the Wall would be allocated to building sections of the border wall, when in actuality, much of the money was used by Bannon, Colfage, and their associates for their own personal endeavors. In fact, according to the charging documents and the reporting, Bannon used almost $1 million that was donated to We Build the Wall for personal expenses. Bannon's role in this scheme was clearly not authentic, especially since he was deceiving so many Trump supporters who genuinely wanted to see the border wall built. Despite generally projecting himself as a populist, Bannon was arrested on a 150-foot yacht worth $35 million that was owned by Miles Kwok, a fugitive Chinese billionaire. Special agents from the United States Attorney's Office in Manhattan and federal postal inspectors, in conjunction with the Coast Guard, boarded Kwok's yacht and arrested Bannon while he was reading a book and drinking coffee. The fact that Bannon, who has fashioned himself as a populist and someone who respects the interests of ordinary Americans, was arrested on a yacht should indicate in of itself that Bannon has not been very authentic. Additionally, Haberman, Rashbaum, and Fewer highlight how when Bannon was walking to his car after being released from custody on a $5 million bond, he declared that, quote, this entire fiasco is to stop people who want to build the wall, end quote. As if that was what Bannon's indictment was really about. Bannon had used the people who want to build the wall as puppets in a financial scheme that ended up granting him almost $1 million to use for his own personal expenses. The people who want to build the wall were deceived by Bannon. And now, Bannon was hoping that they would not notice the fact that the very reason why he was being indicted was because he had lied and misled the people who want to build the wall. If anything, Bannon has slowed down the production of a border wall. We Build a Wall could have stayed true to its goals and become one of the most influential fundraising campaigns in American political history. However, Bannon, Colfage, and their associates reportedly decided instead that they wanted to make a lucrative profit off of We Build the Wall without informing any of their donors, and this is ultimately what led to the downfall of We Build the Wall. Bannon seemed to portray his prosecutors as the enemies of those Americans and Trump supporters who want to build the law. However, if these charges are, are true and to be believed, if anything, 
Bannon himself has been the true enemy of any Americans who want to build the wall. Just one day before Bannon's financial scheme came to light, on August 19th, 2020, Bannon featured Colfage on his podcast, War Room Pandemic, episode 342, The Unraveling of America, with Brian Colfage, Brandon Judd, The Embed, and Wade Davis. In this episode of War Room Pandemic, Bannon told Colfage that, quote, You've been the leader of this, assisting President Trump in building this wall in these tough areas where, where the Army Corps of Engineers has decided not to go. End quote. It is very ironic how just one day before Bannon and Colfage's reported financial scheme would come to the public's attention, Bannon was still pretending as if he and Colfage's work on We Build the Wall was a gesture of support to Trump, when actually... As the reports indicate, they were illegally profiting off of the campaign promises of, of Donald Trump. Bannon has not been authentic with the American people. He has claimed to be a populist and a man of the people, when in actuality he was residing on an expensive yacht. Bannon and his associates claimed that all of the funds that go to We Build the Wall would be allocated to building the border wall, when, in actuality, Bannon reportedly was taking nearly $1 million sent in by donors to We Build the Wall to use for his own personal expenses. But it is this conversation that Bannon has with Colfage one day before their worlds would come crashing down that perhaps best exemplifies the facade of Bannon's authenticity. One day before their scheme came to light, Bannon and Colfage were seemingly oblivious to the increased public scrutiny that was about to fall upon We Build the Wall. The fact that Bannon and Colfage were still praising this fundraising campaign that they were continuously using illegally so close before they were indicted for their illegal activities may very well be all the American people need to know to surmise that Bannon is not authentic. The actual content of Bannon's conversation with Colfage is rather important as well, though. In this conversation, Colfage announced that he had deleted his We Build the Wall GoFundMe page. The reason that Colfage gave publicly to the American people on the podcast was that, quote, We created a fund on Monday for the victims of Black Lives Matter and GoFundMe deleted it. And since they deleted this GoFundMe we made, we, we felt that we had to delete our We Build a Wall GoFundMe, which was the largest GoFundMe ever in history. So we completely deleted that GoFundMe. And you know, we need other Americans to stand up to this type of censorship. We can't allow it. End quote. Colfage went on to articulate how, quote, we're not going to give GoFundMe another penny of the money we raised. End quote. The fact that Colfage deleted the We Build the Wall GoFundMe page one day before the We Build the Wall financial scheme was unveiled to the American people does seem like interesting timing. Did Colfage and Bannon receive an early indication of the legal retribution that awaited them the very next day? Probably not, considering the fact that Bannon was reading a book and drinking coffee on a yacht owned by Kwok when he was arrested by special agents from the United States Attorney's Office in Manhattan and federal postal inspectors in conjunction with the Coast Guard. Colfage also still had, according to what he said while he was on War Room Pandemic episode 342, a website for We Build the Wall. However, if Bannon and Colfage did somehow know 
that they were going to get arrested for their We Build the Wall fundraising scheme and still lied and pretended as if their work on We Build the Wall was a show of support for Trump's political agenda, then that is perhaps more revealing of Bannon's character and moral compass than any indictment will ever be. In episode 342 of War Room Pandemic, Bannon proceeded to ask Colfage, quote, Where do we actually stand, in your opinion, on actually getting the wall built and President Trump fulfilling that campaign promise? End quote. The question is, did Bannon ever care about actually getting Trump's proposed border wall built? Did Colfage even care about actually getting Trump's proposed border wall built? Both of them would probably tell Trump supporters that they do legitimately care about getting Trump's proposed border wall built. However, their actions suggest otherwise. The fact that Bannon was seemingly not an authentic supporter of building Trump's border wall indicates that he also may have not been authentic when he said that it was treasonous and unpatriotic for Trump associates during the 2016 presidential election to have met with Russian officials like Natalia Veselnitskaya. Perhaps, one may wonder, if Bannon did not legitimately support building Trump's border wall, considering the fact that he used the border wall as a scandalous way to gain more profits for himself, perhaps he also did not legitimately believe that it was treasonous and unpatriotic to have conspired with Russian government officials and associates in order to tilt the scales of the 2016 presidential election in Trump's favor. In fact, there is ample evidence to support the idea that Bannon was an active participant in the conspiracy to collude with the Russian government in order to get Trump elected president. Well, this may initially be relatively surprising considering the fact that, as is explained in Michael Schmidt's article in the New York Times titled, Bannon Agrees to Cooperate with Mueller Inquiry, Bannon cooperated with special counsel Robert Mueller's investigations into the potential collusion between the 2016 Trump presidential campaign and the Russian government. However, Schmidt also identified how, when Bannon was interviewed by members of the House Intelligence Committee, he refused to answer numerous questions about Trump, claiming that the White House had told Bannon to assert executive privilege. Bannon's less-than-forthcoming nature in this instance irritated committee members of both political parties, and Democrats even asserted that the White House used executive privilege as a, quote, gag order, end quote, in an ultimately successful effort to prevent Bannon from speaking to them about Trump. Perhaps Bannon's less than forthcoming nature and willingness to invoke executive privilege in his interview with the House Intelligence Committee was part of a cover-up of his own to prevent any congressman from discovering his true role in the scandal in which tr the Trump 2016 presidential campaign worked with Russian government officials and associates in order to acquire compromising information on Hillary Clinton and to interfere with the results of the 2016 presidential election. Or... Bannon's lack of cooperation with the House Intelligence Committee may have been what the Democrats apparently asserted it was, an effort by the White House to prevent Bannon from saying anything too compromising or negative about Trump. Ultimately, it seems like the truth is a little bit of both of these factors. The Trump White House definitely did want to prevent Bannon from revealing scandalous information about Trump. However, Bannon, as I will describe, was also involved, to some extent, in a variety of scandalous situations related to the potential Trump-Russia collusion scandal 
that he probably did not want the American public to focus on. Bannon has criticized Kushner for taking meetings with Russians during the 2016 presidential election in order to tilt the scales of the election in Trump's favor. These criticisms seem to indicate that he looked down at those in the Trump 2016 presidential campaign who conspired with Russian government officials and associates. However, Bannon also criticized Manafort for his criminal activities, which ended up including fraud and money laundering when, in a cruel twist of irony, Bannon ended up getting arrested for fraud and money laundering as well. Bannon has proven more than once that he can take on a rather two-faced persona. For instance, Bannon has prided himself on being a part of the populist nationalist movement. According to Kevin Sullivan's article in the Washington Post titled, A Nationalist Abroad, Stephen Bannon Evangelizes Trump-Style Politics Across Europe, Bannon, quote, argues that nationalist and populist forces, in part inspired by Trump, are poised to claim political power in capitals from Pakistan to Japan to Australia, Brazil, and Colombia. And he says he's on the horn to all of them. End quote. Sullivan, who published his article on September 26, 2018, wrote that Bannon, quote, says he's going to Australia for five days in November, then Singapore over Thanksgiving, and he's even had feelers from Israel and Egypt. We're open for business, Bannon says. We're a populist nationalist NGO, and we're global. But first Europe, where Bannon started the week here in the Italian capital before heading to the Czech Republic, Hungary, and beyond, end quote. The former special assistant to the president and director of White House message strategy, Cliff Sims, even recounted how, upon leaving the White House, Bannon, quote, has grand visions of leading a nationalist movement that would sweep across the globe. I can do whatever I need to, he told me over the phone. It's going to be epic, brother, end quote. Despite Bannon's apparent devotion to populist and nationalist forces, there is some evidence to suggest that Bannon is not as dedicated to this movement as his frequent global travels would make it seem. In Alison Clayman's phenomenal and fascinating 2019 documentary film about Bannon, titled The Brink, Clayman asked Bannon, quote, Can you explain where we are right now? End quote. Bannon responds with, quote, This is the Van Nuys Private Airport. This is the populist... End quote. That was all Bannon was able to get out before his voice trailed off. Bannon's nephew, Sean, interjects with, quote, headquarters? End quote. Bannon, seemingly realizing the hypocrisy of what he practiced versus what he preached, immediately acknowledged that, quote, this is so bad. I'm going to get so crushed. I'm going to get so crushed in this film. She got every five-star hotel. End quote. Bannon's questionable authenticity makes it rather believable that he would criticize Kushner for meeting with Russian government officials and associates when he himself did so as well. Ultimately, though, what is important to note as Bannon's connections with Russia during the 2016 presidential election are unearthed is the fact that many Trump supporters may not defend Bannon as much as they would defend Trump. Part of that may be the result of the lack of trust that some supporters of Trump's ideas have in Bannon after his role in the We Build the Wall scandal became public knowledge. According to Caitlin Dixon and Crystal Hill's Yahoo News article titled, I trusted them. Some We Build the Wall donors feel cheated by Bannon. Some don't care. 
Kathy McLean, a vocal Trump supporter, said that she contributed $50 to the We Build the Wall fundraising campaign. McLean was one of hundreds of thousands of donors to We Build the Wall that was defrauded by Bannon, Colfage, and their associates, according to federal prosecutors. McLean told Yahoo News that, quote, I am devastated that Steve Bannon and Brian Colfage and others have been charged as I trusted them, especially Brian. However, I fully believe in our justice system. I will not judge them, but will leave it to a jury. It's wrong to judge without the evidence, end quote. Other Trump supporters, such as Pat Childers, also expressed cautious distrust of Bannon, Colfage, and their associates. Please note that in the following quote from Childers in Dixon and Hill's article, I have replaced any expletives with the word blank. Childers posted a comment below We Build the Wall's website in which he declared that, quote, I donated to the Wall Fund. If what they are charged with is true, then I am so blank disappointed. If they use this situation to enrich themselves, then they are no better than the Dems, end quote. While both McLean and Childers seem to be indicating that they do not want to judge Bannon until he is found either guilty or innocent of the charges being levied against him, they also express their disdain for what Bannon, Colfage, and their associates have been apparently doing with the donations to We Build the Wall. The lack of trust that Trump supporters currently have in Bannon as a result of his We Build the Wall fundraising scheme probably would have been enough to begin to turn Trump supporters against him. However, Trump over the past few years has frequently distanced himself from Bannon has, and has even occasionally slandered Bannon, despite Bannon's work in defending Trump to the House Intelligence Committee, as well as his significant, possibly even critical role in getting Trump elected president in the 2016 presidential election, Trump has not shown Bannon the same degree of respect that Bannon has shown him ever since early 2018. It was at this time that excerpts of Michael Wolff's book, Fire and Fury, Inside the Trump White House, were released, as is recounted by Megan Kennelly's Business Insider article titled, Sloppy Steve, Bannon Becomes Trump's Latest Example of Name-Calling, that quoted Bannon with hinting that the meeting that Donald Trump Jr. took with Veselnitskaya was treasonous and unpatriotic. President Trump tweeted on January 4th, 2018, quote, I authorized zero access to White House, actually turned him down many times, for author of phony book. I never spoke to him for book, full of lies, misrepresentations, and sources that don't exist. Look at this guy's past and watch what happens to him and Sloppy Steve. End quote. Sloppy Steve, as Bannon became to Trump, was attacked by Trump on more than one occasion. With Trump even saying that when Bannon left the White House, quote, he not only lost his job, he lost his mind, end quote. On January 5th, 2018, Trump praised a wealthy family of Republican donors known as the Mercers for pulling their financial support from Bannon, saying that it was a smart decision. This was especially interesting, considering the fact that it was one of the Mercers, Rebecca Mercer, who, according to Green, first urged Trump to replace Manafort with Bannon as one of the key leaders of the Trump 2016 campaign, presidential campaign in the first place. Green recounted how, quote, Mercer told Trump that he needed to get rid of Paul Manafort, whose ill-conceived attempt to moderate him into someone acceptable to swing voters had plainly failed. 
Furthermore, growing attention to Manafort's ties to pro-Kremlin autocrats was hurting Trump's campaign. Bring in Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway, Mercer told him. I've talked to them. They'll do it. Trump agreed. End quote. Additionally, as Sims articulated, while Bannon was in the White House, he saw the Mercer family and its resources as something of a backup plan to make a significant difference in the world should he get relieved of his duties as White House chief strategist. After General John Kelly became Trump's chief of staff, Sims believed that Bannon's days as White House chief strategist might be numbered and came to talk to Bannon in the Eisenhower Executive Office building. Bannon told Sims that, quote, listen, me and the general are great, end quote, and that, quote, I'm a Navy guy, he's a Marine, it's going to work out fine, end quote. Sims, however, believed that Bannon was, quote, putting on a brave face, but surely, I thought, he must feel the walls closing in around him. He had all but run out of friends in senior roles by this point. He couldn't possibly be that out of it. Sure enough, I found out later that he had slipped out of town for a day to meet with the Mercer family, major financial backers of Breitbart and longtime Bannon benefactors. He was exploring what it would be like for him to return to the private sector, just in case, end quote. When Bannon accurately realized that his time in the White House was reaching its closing chapter, he visited the Mercer family. Seemingly, in order to ensure that a potential ousting from the White House would not mark the end of his life in politics. This adds a great deal of context to Trump's tweet on January 5th, 2018, in which he praised the Mercer family for pulling their financial support from Bannon. The loss of the Mercer family's financial support was likely a devastating blow to Bannon and his political career and movement. Trump apparently realized this and amplified this story. Although Trump has seemed to tone down his harsh attacks on Bannon since early 2018, he still has rather frequently distanced himself from Bannon. Trump apparently declared that Bannon's work to crowdsource private funds dedicated to the border wall was, quote, inappropriate, end quote, as well as, quote, done for showboating reasons, end quote, according to Matthew Choi in his political article titled, Trump distances himself from Bannon after arrest, calls private wall efforts inappropriate. The attacks that Trump levied against Bannon's work with We Build the Wall was particularly noteworthy because Trump himself had been associated with We Build the Wall for some time. According to Andrew Solander and his Forbes article titled, Trump reportedly gave We Build the Wall his blessing and tried to steer one billion contract to its builder. Kobach, who was the general counsel of We Build the Wall, declared in January of 2019 that Trump had given We Build the Wall his blessing. Donald Trump Jr. also described We Build the Wall as, quote, pretty amazing, end quote. Trump even continuously tried to get the United States Army Corps of Engineers to provide a $1.28 billion wall building contract to Fisher Industries, a firm that was aiding We Build the Wall in constructing a private part of the border wall. Former White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders remarked that Trump's interest in Fisher Industries and its head, Tommy Fisher, 
was the result of his desire to, quote, get the job done under budget and ahead of schedule, end quote. Trump's connection with Fisher and We Build the Wall is certainly one that has been unfortunately overlooked. Trump's connection to We Build the Wall, however, is not purely because of his connections with Fisher. As the New York Times investigative reporter Eric Lipton pointed out in a tweet from August 21st, 2020, quote, The folks from Build the Wall, whether they were overtly embraced by President Trump or not, clearly made effort to make it seem that way on social media as they raised $25 million from folks across the nation. Amanda Shia is the wife of Timothy Shia, who was criminally charged, end quote. Lipton attached an image of a social media post made by Amanda Shia in which she posted a picture of herself with Trump. In her description, Amanda Shia explained that Trump, quote, had a lot of questions about the wall we the people built through We Build the Wall. He was impressed, but more importantly, incredibly personable and easy to talk to. I forgot that I was speaking with one of the most powerful men in the world, end quote. Amanda Shia's husband, Timothy, has, of course, been among those involved with the We Build the Wall fundraising scheme. Colfage himself, as is recounted in Salvador Hernandez, Brianna Sachs, and Rosie Gray's BuzzFeed News article titled, The Founder of We Build the Wall Was Arrested for Fraud, Now Trump Wants Nothing to Do With It, even visited the White House on December 9th, 2019. Donald Trump Jr., according to this article, also told Kofage in July of 2019, quote, Brian, thank you so much for all your sacrifices, doing this, and showing what capitalism is all about, end quote. Trump and his family were clearly involved with We Build the Wall. However, when the leaders of We Build the Wall were revealed to be exploiting Trump supporters' authentic desire to build Trump's border wall, Trump greatly distanced himself from We Build the Wall, and, according to Hernandez, Sachs, and Gray's article, former White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany declared that, quote, President Trump has no involvement in this project, and felt that it was only being done in order to showboat, and perhaps raise funds, end quote. This statement that McEnany made is simply not true. Trump had been involved with various associates of We Build the Wall, such as Amanda Shia and Fisher, and dis directly discussed We Build the Wall with Amanda Shia. Colfage apparently visited Trump's White House, and Trump even gave We Build the Wall his blessing. On August 2nd, 2019, it even seemed as if Bannon was finally getting back into Trump's good graces. It was this day that, as Kat Tenbarge recounts, in her Business Insider article titled, Trump Says Steve Bannon Was One of His Best Pupils 19 Months After Calling Him Sloppy Steve Bannon Who Cried When He Got Fired and Begged For His Job, Trump tweeted that Bannon was one of his, quote, best pupils, end quote, and, quote, a giant Trump fan, end quote, who he, quote, loved working with, end quote. However, after Bannon was arrested, as Choi recounted, Trump declared that Bannon's work to crowdsource private funds dedicated to the border wall was, quote, inappropriate, end quote, as well as, quote, done for showboating reasons, end quote. Not only has Trump per persistently attacked Bannon over the past few years, 
but so have his allies. Even Stephen Miller, who once was Bannon's close political ally, attacked Bannon, as recounted in Chris Silliza's CNN article titled The 24 Most Grotesque Lines from Jake Tapper's Stephen Miller Interview. In an interview with CNN host Jake Tapper, Miller declared that, quote, Steve Bannon's eloquence in that description notwithstanding, it's tragic and unfortunate that Steve would make these grotesque comments, end quote. The charges levied against Bannon and Trump and his allies' persistent attacks on Bannon have likely thrown ordinary Trump supporters' faith in Bannon into question. So, should some of Bannon's potential collusion with Russian government officials and associates come under more intense scrutiny in the future? Bannon may not have a substantive and loyal enough base of supporters to help him maintain any sort of public respect. Sims explained in his book how, after excerpts of Wolf's book were released to the world, quote, Why, we all wondered, would Bannon act so recklessly by giving quotes to this guy, apparently while he still worked in the White House? I could only guess that he was seduced by the idea that this book would show his great contribution to history, and that overcame his judgment. The president was livid as anyone had ever seen him over this betrayal. Trump allies and surrogates were calling and texting senior members of the White House communications staff, asking how they should respond to the salacious quotes. Standing just outside the Oval Office, I asked Hope Hicks what she wanted me to do. Sitting behind the Resolute desk, Trump overheard my question. Cliff, he yelled from his desk. Tell them this. They're either with me or they're with Steve. That's it. I looked back at Hope and raised my eyebrows. It's time for choosing, she said. And no one can have it both ways. End quote. It's time for choosing. Trump supporters are either with Trump or they're with Bannon. As a result of Trump, Miller, and others' attacks on Bannon, and the revelation that Bannon was, according to his indictment, apparently taking advantage of Trump supporters' authentic desire to build Trump's proposed border wall in order to make a profit, many Trump supporters will likely choose Trump over Bannon. Bannon's less-than-authentic political nature has raised doubts in some of his supporters, and those doubts could ultimately lead to less people defending him when more revelations surface regarding his involvement in some of these other scandals to get Trump elected president and to keep him in office. Bannon believed that Manafort's dubious activities in Ukraine would be a political kill shot. Is this going to be a political kill shot for Bannon? In the book Collusion, the author... Luke Harding recounts the peculiar circumstance when, in a July 2016 press conference in Florida, then-presidential candidate Trump declared, quote, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. Let's see if that happens, end quote. The emails, of course, that Trump was referring to were those belonging to his presidential opponent, Hillary Clinton, that Trump believed would be incriminating against Clinton and help him win the election. Harding explains in his book how Trump made this statement as claims began to surface that Russia was hacking Democratic emails. 
This public declaration by Trump of his willingness to condone Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election is unfortunately an accurate reflection of the general willingness of his campaign team to collaborate with the despotic and tyrannical regime of Russia just in order to secure victory in the 2016 presidential election. Some members of the campaign, including Bannon, took rather proactive roles in obtaining the emails that Russia managed to procure from Clinton. As Josh Lowe indicates in his Newsweek article titled Hillary Clinton's emails, Peter Smith, the GOP operative who tried to get them from Russian hackers, killed himself. The Republican operative, Peter Smith, tried to acquire Clinton's emails and claims that former Trump campaign officials Michael Flynn, Kellyanne Conway, Sam Clovis, and Bannon were all supportive of Smith's efforts to obtain these emails and tried to help him do so. As Lowe articulates, Quote, Matt Tate, a security researcher who Smith attempted to recruit to his effort, said in a blog that it was immediately apparent that Smith was both well-connected within the top echelons of the campaign and he seemed to know both Lieutenant General Flynn and his son well. Tate also said that Smith never expressed to me any discomfort with the possibility that the emails he was seeking were potentially from a Russian front, a likelihood he was happy to acknowledge." End quote. The collusion between Smith and the Russian government, however, has subsequently been revealed to be even more direct and explicit than that. Smith's team discovered five groups of hackers, two of them that were apparently Russian, that all claimed to have access to Clinton's emails. In an MSNBC YouTube video titled, Mike Flynn met with GOP operative who sought hacked Clinton email, WSJ Rachel Maddow MSNBC, that was posted on October 10th, 2018, MSNBC host Rachel Maddow explains how Smith, during the 2016 presidential election, had been, quote, trying to track down what he believed were thousands of emails that had been hacked from Hillary Clinton's private email server. He contacted people who he believed were Russian hackers online to encourage them to get Clinton's emails so those emails could be used against Clinton in the election for Trump's benefit. In other words, Peter Smith, U.S. citizen, volunteered to the Wall Street Journal last year that he, as an American citizen, really had tried to collude with Russia to influence the presidential election in Trump's favor. Since then, one important question about that story has been, well... Was he just doing this as Peter Smith, private citizen? Or was he doing this as an agent of the Trump campaign? End quote. The connections that Smith seems to have made with individuals such as Bannon, Conway, Clovis, and Flynn, who had a great deal of influence within the 2016 Trump presidential campaign, appears to indicate the latter. That Smith was in fact an intermediary between Trump and his close associates and the Russian government. In this video, Shelby Holliday, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, describes how Smith, quote, had documents that said Steve Bannon was involved, Kellyanne Conway, those people have completely denied involvement, end quote. However, as has already been established, despite Bannon's purported image as a populist, he seems to rarely be very authentic. Considering that, it seems quite likely that these documents that showcase that Smith was being aided in his efforts to collude with the Russian government by Bannon are legitimate and factual.
Additionally, the genuine relationship that Smith had with Flynn seems to indicate that he had a genuine relationship with Bannon as well. As the Wall Street Journal article titled, Late GOP Activist Peter W. Smith Met with Former Trump Advisor Michael Flynn in 2015, that was written by Holiday, Byron Tao, and Dustin Volz, illustrates, quote, One of Mr. Smith's former associates wrote to a friend last week, as you are aware, Peter started a business relationship with General Mike Flynn in November 2015. We spoke with him on the day he left for his trip to Moscow. The associate, John Saboxin, sent the email as the journal was preparing a story on Mr. Smith and was attempting to read Mr. Saboxin. He didn't respond to requests for comment. The journal reported in 2017 that Mr. Smith implied he had connections to Mr. Flynn but the email and people familiar with the matter indicate the two men were in contact and did in fact have a working relationship. Though no apparent business deals came with the 2015 meeting, the introduction gave Mr. Smith a contact who would go on to become part of Mr. Trump's inner circle. End quote. Considering the fact that Flynn has been reported to have known Smith since at least 2015, meeting Flynn right before he went to Moscow even, it stands to reason that Smith's apparent connection with Bannon would be as real and genuine as that which he shared with Flynn. Smith's activities have also been revealed to have been interwoven in other attempts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. According to Holiday, Tao, and Volz, quote, Beyond his connection with Mr. Flynn, Mr. Smith also claimed ties with the anti-secrecy website WikiLeaks, and he solicited money to assist founder Julian Assange with legal support, according to Mr. Wartell in an email Mr. Smith sent in December 2016 that was reviewed by the journal. In the email, an update on what Smith called the Clinton Email Reconnaissance Initiative, he told supporters his team had come across multiple individuals in possession of the Clinton emails in the fall of 2016. He also wrote that he directed one or more of those people to send the emails to WikiLeaks. End quote. This is incredibly important considering the monumental role that WikiLeaks has amassed in the scandal to influence the results of the 2016 presidential election. As Harding indicates, WikiLeaks was, quote, a platform that Trump openly praised in the months before the election. We assess with high confidence that the GRU relayed material it acquired from the DNC and senior Democratic officials to WikiLeaks, the report said, adding, Moscow most likely chose WikiLeaks because of its self-proclaimed reputation for authenticity, end quote. The report that Harding was referring to was one co-authored by all three of the leading American intelligence agencies, those being the FBI, the CIA, and the NSA, which, if anything, should attest to the incredible validity and reliability of this report. The GRU, of course, refers to the Russian intelligence apparatus and the DNC being the Democratic National Committee. Harding goes on to detail how, quote, Julian Assange, WikiLeaks editor-in-chief, disputes this and says the leaks didn't come from a state party. The agencies don't believe him. The report suggests that WikiLeaks had become, in effect, a sub-branch of Russian intelligence and its in-house publishing wing. In September, WikiLeaks moved its hosting to Moscow, end quote. Perhaps that is, in fact, effectively an admission of guilt on the part of Assange and WikiLeaks, that they were actually acting as extensions 
of the Russian government's interests. In fact, the same trip to Moscow that Flynn made hours after talking to Smith was one in which he encountered Assange, who, as recounted by Harding, made his presence known via satellite to those attending the 10th anniversary gala celebrating the launch of RT, Russia Today, television channel, including Flynn. Clearly, there is no denying that Flynn had a relationship with Smith. And if Smith's relationship with Flynn was real, then it makes sense that his relationship with Bannon was probably genuine as well. The notion that Smith, someone who documents claim was aided in his efforts to locate potentially incriminating emails on Clinton by Bannon, was not only meeting with Russian hackers to obtain these emails, but also authorized these emails to be sent to WikiLeaks, which leading American intelligence agencies have effectively identified as an arm of the Russian government, so that these emails could be disseminated to the American people, represents collusion at the highest levels. Perhaps the most shocking element of this story of the Trump 2016 presidential campaign's collusion with the Russian government is the fact that WikiLeaks did release Clinton's emails. As is indicated in Kyle Cheney and Sarah Wheaton's Politico article titled The Most Revealing Clinton Campaign Emails in WikiLeaks Release, almost immediately after Trump suffered a major blow to his popularity when the Access Hollywood tapes were released, WikiLeaks released a batch of emails from Clinton's campaign chairman email account. This release of emails by WikiLeaks subsequently went on to damage Clinton's popularity and seems to have influenced the outcome of the 2016 presidential election in Trump's favor. It is not simply just documents and Smith's own hearsay that link Smith to Bannon. As the journalist Wendy Siegelman tweeted on June 30th, 2017, quote, Bannon denied knowing Smith, but Smith communicated with Matthew Boyle at Breitbart, end quote. Matthew Boyle had been the Washington political editor for Bannon's own Breitbart News Network. Boyle was an incredibly close associate and consultant of Bannon throughout 2016, and even had something of a relationship with Trump himself. After all, as Green highlights in his book, quote, Trump's attacks on Mexican immigrants and his vow to build a great wall at the U.S.-Mexico border, ensured that a lack of attention was one problem Trump would not have to confront. Not then, not ever. Leaving nothing to chance, he invited Breitbart News' Matthew Boyle up to his 26th floor office immediately following his announcement for an exclusive interview and some extra anti-immigrant, anti-establishment jawboning just to ensure that the Republican base heard his message loud and clear. They heard it and they loved it. Bannon, who was ecstatic that Trump had not softened his message now that he was truly in the race, splashed the news across Breitbart. Then he got busy arranging a surreal visit Trump would make to the U.S.-Mexico border a few weeks hence, one that would further affix his anti-immigration identity at the center of his presidential campaign, end quote. Clearly, Boyle not only had the ear of Bannon, but also had some sizable influence with Trump himself. If Bannon and Boyle were both in contact with Smith, according to the documents, then it is practically a given that Bannon did indeed assist Smith in his efforts to commit what very well may have been the most significant and successful election fraud effort in the history of the United States. Unfortunately, Smith is no longer available for questioning in regards to his role in this effort. 
As Stephanie DeWilson illustrates in the heavy article titled Peter W. Smith, Five Fast Facts You Need to Know, just 10 days after Smith talked to the Wall Street Journal about his role in trying to retrieve Clinton's missing emails from Russian hackers, he was found dead. Smith's death has been the focus of much scrutiny, in particular in regards to the ever-evolving narratives regarding how he died. Initially, it was reported that it was believed that Smith died of natural causes and was not killed. However, it was later reported that Smith was, in fact, killed, seemingly by his own machinations. Naturally, as Dwilson showcases in her article, Smith's death has become the subject of a plethora of conspiracy theories, some of which even insinuate that the Russian government orchestrated Smith's death after he talked publicly with the press about his efforts to contact Russian hackers about Clinton's emails. The notion that the Russian government would kill an American citizen on American soil is a frightening one to say the least, but there is no legitimate evidence to suggest that is the case. Even still, this is a dangerous situation that Smith got himself into, and one that potentially determined the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. This was also an effort, all evidence suggests, that Bannon took a proactive role in helping Smith accomplish. Despite his apparent disdain for collusion, Bannon's role in Smith's scheme represents a key example of collusion between the 2016 Trump presidential campaign and the Russian government, and one that emphasizes his true, inauthentic colors. And that is not even the full extent of Bannon's efforts to collude with the Russian government in order to get Trump elected president. In fact, Bannon's connections with WikiLeaks do not simply end with Smith. According to the Moscow Project article titled Breaking Down the Mueller Report, Steve Bannon, which cites some evidence from the Mueller Report, quote, Bannon was also involved in the campaign's efforts to establish back-channel communications with WikiLeaks to capitalize on all upcoming releases of emails Russian hackers had stolen from Trump's opponents. According to the report, Bannon appears to have been present for or involved in the Trump campaign's July 2016 discussions about capitalizing on upcoming WikiLeaks releases after the initial dump of documents from the Democratic National Committee. Although Bannon's name does not appear in the unredacted text of the sections of the report describing the conversations, which is significantly redacted, he is cited as a source of information regarding Trump's conversations with Gates and others about planning a communication strategy based on the possible release of Clinton emails by WikiLeaks, volume 2, page 18. This strongly implies that Bannon was involved in, or at the very least present for, the conversations, and subsequently described them to the special counsel's office, end quote. Bannon's apparent knowledge of WikiLeaks' release of Clinton's emails before WikiLeaks actually released them is deeply disturbing, especially when one takes into account the fact that WikiLeaks is appropriately believed to, by leading intelligence agencies in the United States to be an arm of the GRU, the same Russian intelligence agency that Kalimnik was a part of. His apparent advocacy in establishing a back channel with WikiLeaks undoubtedly reflects collusion at the highest levels of the Trump campaign with an arm of the Russian intelligence apparatus. Furthermore, Roger Stone, Bannon's fellow apparent border wall enthusiast, is also reported to have had played a major role as an intermediary between Bannon and WikiLeaks. 
The Moscow Project article titled Breaking Down the Mueller Report, Steve Bannon, explains how, quote, Bannon also communicated with Roger Stone during the period where Roger Stone was acting as a back channel between the Trump campaign and WikiLeaks. Though it appears that most of what the Mueller report has to say about Stone is redacted because of Stone's ongoing federal court case, Stone's indictment and public reporting document numerous conversations between Stone and Bannon during the campaign. This includes conversations with a Breitbart editor as an intermediary about potential future releases from WikiLeaks in the few days before WikiLeaks began publishing emails stolen from Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta's inbox. Bannon is reportedly the high-ranking Trump campaign official mentioned in the indictment who emailed Stone in early October 2016 asking about the status of future releases and who texted Stone to say, well done, on October 7 after WikiLeaks began publishing the emails. End quote. Well done. With two words, Bannon forever immortalized his own guilt in conspiring with a hostile foreign power just in order to seize power in an American presidential election. Well done. These two simple words are not exactly befitting for Stone's conspiratorial role during the 2016 presidential election. However, from Bannon's perspective, it is apparent that Stone was doing exactly what he wanted him to do. As a matter of fact, Eric Tucker, Colleen Long, and Michael Balsamo's Business Insider article titled FBI Documents Reveal That Roger Stone Was in Direct Communication with WikiLeaks Founder Julian Assange, it is stated that, quote, Bannon told Mueller's team under questioning that he had asked Stone about WikiLeaks because he had heard that Stone had a channel to Assange and he was hoping for more releases of damaging information, end quote. Bannon thereby flatly admitted to Mueller that Bannon had established this back-channel line of communication to Stone in an effort to collude with an arm of the Russian intelligence apparatus in order to impact the result of the 2016 presidential election. Stone, of course, was a key player in the collusion efforts between the 2016 Trump presidential campaign and the Russian government. After all, according to Natasha Bertrand's article in The Atlantic titled Roger Stone's Secret Messages with WikiLeaks, Quote, Stone also exchanged private Twitter messages in August and September of 2016 with a user known as Guccifer 2.0. Guccifer claimed in a posting on their WordPress site to have penetrated Hillary Clinton's and other Democrats' mail servers. But the self-described hacker was later characterized by U.S. officials as a front for Russian military intelligence. End quote. Clearly, the notion that Stone acted as an intermediary between the 2016 Trump presidential campaign and the Russian government has some precedent. Despite criticizing Kushner for engaging in secret meetings with agents of the Russian government, privately, Bannon actually joined Kushner in meeting these Russian agents. According to Adam Entis, Greg Miller, Kevin Seif, and Karen DeYoung's article in the Washington Post titled Blackwater Founder Held Secret Seychelles Meeting to Establish Trump-Putin Back Channel, Bannon, Kushner, and Flynn all met with the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nahan, 
in December of 2016, shortly after the 2016 presidential election results had been determined. As Entis, Miller, Seif, and DeYoung emphasize, quote, In an unusual breach of protocol, the UAE did not notify the Obama administration in advance of the visit, though officials found out because Zayed's name appeared on a flight manifest. Officials said Zayed and his brother, the UAE's national security advisor, coordinated the Seychelles meeting with Russian government officials with the goal of establishing an unofficial back channel between Trump and Putin. End quote. Zayed appears to have been acting as an intermediary between the Trump transition team and the Russian government. The Seychelles meeting that the article references was one in which Zayed orchestrated a meeting between agents of the Russian government and Blackwater founder Eric Prince at, the ver- at a very similar period during the transitionary era. However, the fact that Zayed had this role as an intermediary between the Trump transition team and the Russian government, and then subsequently secretly met with Bannon, Kushner, and Flynn without notifying then-United States President Barack Obama's administration suggests a very suspicious encounter between the Trump transition team and someone widely regarded to be an extension of Putin's agenda at this point. In fact, as is highlighted in Entis Miller, Seif, and De Young's article, quote, Zayed met twice with Putin in 2016, according to Western officials, and urged the Russian leader to work more closely with the Emirates and Saudi Arabia in effort to isolate Iran. At the same time of the Seychelles meeting, and for weeks afterward, the UAE believed that Prince had the blessing of the new administration to act as as its unofficial representative. The Russian participant was a person whom Zayed knew was close to Putin. From his interactions with both men, the official said. Zayed clearly believed that a cooperative relationship between the United States and Russia that Trump could bring about could potentially benefit the United Arab Emirates. This was the mindset with which he met Bannon, Kushner, and Flynn. Unfortunately, the contents of this meeting are not available to the American public. However, if this meeting tells us anything, it is that Bannon's condemnation of Kushner was, once again, hardly authentic and very hypocritical. Even Prince's own meeting in the Seychelles is one that links Bannon to the Russian government. As Entis, Miller, Seif, and De Young elaborate, attention has been brought to the fact that Prince, quote, appears to have particularly close ties to Bannon, appearing multiple times on the Breitbart satellite radio program and website that Bannon ran before joining the Trump campaign. In a July interview with Bannon, Prince said those seeking forceful U.S. leadership should wait till January and hope Mr. Trump is elected. And he lashed out at President Barack Obama, saying that because of his policies, the terrorists, the fascists, are winning, end quote. Prince's close ties to Bannon make it difficult to believe that their respective meetings with Zayed were independent from each other and the collusion scandal. In fact, Prince even made an appearance on Bannon's podcast, War Room Pandemic. In War Room Pandemic, episode 1100, Management of Conflict versus Expectation of Winning with Eric Prince, Jack Posobiec, Nor Bin Laden, Bannon introduces Prince as, quote, my co-host, patriot and entrepreneur, international man of mystery. A, uh, a, uh, a good buddy, close friend, end quote. Clearly, Bannon and his good buddy and close friend, Prince, 
have been working closely together in the geopolitical sphere of the world for years, making their very closely related meetings with Zayed even more suspicious. In fact, it seems as though Bannon's meeting with Zayed may have had an impact on Prince's efforts to establish a back-channel relationship with the Russian government. According to Entis, Miller, Seif, and DeYoung, quote, Following the New York meeting between the Emiratis and Trump aides, Zayed was approached by Prince, who said he was authorized to act as an unofficial surrogate for the president-elect, according to the officials. He wanted Zayed to set up a meeting with a Putin associate. Zayed agreed and proposed the Seychelles as the meeting place because of the privacy it would afford both sides, end quote. Prince was not even very subtle about his intentions to use Zayed as an intermediary between the Trump transition team and the Russian government. Additionally, the close proximity between his meeting with Zayed and Bannon's meeting with Zayed implies that, more likely than not, Bannon and Prince were sharing information with each other and were co-conspirators in the mission to get Trump elected, legally or otherwise. Prince was far from a remote character in Trump's orbit. On the contrary, he and his family have been critical supporters of Trump since 2016. As Sam Tannenhaus indicates in the Vanity Fair article titled, I'm tired of America wasting our blood and treasure, the strange ascent of Betsy DeVos and Eric Prince, Prince's own sister is Betsy DeVos, who became the Secretary of Education within the Trump administration. The Trump campaign's very last rally on November 7th, 2016, just so happened to be held at the DeVos Place Convention Center. All of this goes to show that Prince had a very strong relationship with both Bannon and the Trump campaign at large. Given Bannon's role as the Trump campaign manager, as well as his close personal relationship with Prince, it is more likely than not that Bannon not only approved of Prince's efforts to secretly establish a back-channel line of communication between the Trump inner circle and the Russian government, but that Bannon actively pursued such an endeavor in his meeting with Zayed. Unfortunately, Zayed is no longer available for questioning in regards to his role in effectively establishing such a back-channel line of communication between Trump and Putin. As the article in The Guardian titled, UAE President Shema Khalifa bin Zayed al-Nahan dies age 73 indicates, Zayed has since died. Prince and DeVos, however, continually remain critical figures within Trump's orbit. In fact, this was far from their only connection to the Russian government. After all, as is showcased by Dexter Filkins in the New Yorker article titled, Was There a Connection Between a Russian Bank and the Trump Campaign? Quote, In the small town of Lidditz, Pennsylvania, a domain linked to the Trump Organization, mail1.trump-email.com seemed to be behaving in a peculiar way. The server that housed the domain belonged to a company called ListTrack which mostly helped deliver mass marketing emails. Blasts of messages, advertising spa treatments, Las Vegas weekends, and other enticements. Some Trump organization domains sent mass email blasts, but the one that Max and his colleagues spotted appeared not to be sending anything. At the same time, though, a very small group of companies seemed to be trying to communicate with it. Examining records for the Trump domain, Max's group discovered DNS lookups from a pair of servers owned by Alpha Bank, one of the largest banks in Russia. 
Alpha Bank's computers were looking up the address of the Trump server nearly every day. There were dozens of lookups on some days, and far fewer on others, but the total number was notable. Between May and September, Alpha Bank looked up the Trump Organization's domain more than 2,000 times, end quote. If this bizarre exchange was not peculiar enough, Filkins elaborated that, quote, only one other entity seemed to be reaching out to the Trump Organization's domain with any frequency, Spectrum Health of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Spectrum Health is closely linked to the DeVos family. Richard DeVos Jr. is the chairman of the board and one of its hospitals is named after his mother. His wife, Betsy DeVos, was appointed Secretary of Education by Donald Trump. Her brother, Eric Prince, is a Trump associate who has attracted the scrutiny of Robert Mueller, the special counsel investigating Trump's ties to Russia. Mueller has been looking into Prince's meeting following the election with a Russian official in the Seychelles, at which he reportedly discussed setting up a back channel between Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin, end quote. Despite what Bannon and even Prince may claim, this string of connections between the 2016 Trump presidential campaign and the Russian government hardly seems incidental. This is especially relevant and important given the fact that, as Amy Knight points out in the Daily Beast article titled, These Putin Pals Were Mysteriously Spared from U.S. Sanctions, Alpha Bank Tycoons Peter Avon and Mikhail Friedman are close friends of Putin. In fact, Avon has been a close associate of Putin's since 1991, when Putin was still a deputy to the mayor of St. Petersburg. Their connections to the DeVos family almost assuredly links the DeVos family directly to Putin. And considering Prince and Bannon's similar and closely related meetings with Zayed, as well as Prince's appearances on Breitbart and close connections with Bannon, it stands to reason that Bannon was just as involved in the collusion between the 2016 Trump presidential campaign and the Russian government as Prince was. Even after the conclusion of the 2016 presidential campaign, Bannon and Prince continued to collaborate in quite dubious exploits with agents of the Russian government. As the Moscow Project article titled Breaking Down the Mueller Report Steve Bannon articulates, quote, Bannon appears to have been involved in arranging the January 11, 2017 meeting between Eric Prince and Kirill Dmitriev, the head of the sanctioned state-run Russian Direct Investment Fund in the Seychelles. During the campaign, Ben appears to have been the link between Prince and the campaign, periodically receiving unsolicited policy papers on issues such as foreign policy, trade, and Russian election interference from Prince, end quote. The fact that Bannon was apparently orchestrating some sort of meeting between Prince and the head of the sanctioned state-run Russian Direct Investment Fund with clear blatant ties to the Russian government does shatter the illusion that Bannon was not actively working to facilitate connections between members of the Trump inner circle and the Russian government. In fact, 
Bannon not only orchestrated the meeting between Prince and Kirill Dmitriev, but Bannon also played a role in the meeting themselves, which was very significant, because at this point, Bannon was someone with direct access to Trump, who was about to enter the White House. As the Mueller report recounts, quote, Prince added that he would inform Bannon about his meeting with Dmitriev, and if there was interest in continuing the discussion, Bannon, or someone else on the transition team, would do so, end quote. The Mueller report goes on to indicate how Prince believes that he provided Bannon with Dmitriev's contact information. Much of the exact contents of the meeting between Prince and Dmitriev unfortunately seem to remain redacted in the Mueller report. However, the simple fact that Bannon seemingly had direct access to a member of Putin's inner circle mere months after Putin authorized the interference in the 2016 presidential election is enough to raise suspicion. In fact, Bannon not only played a role in cultivating a relationship between Prince and Dmitriev, but also found himself in, involved in, in something of a connection between Dmitriev and Kushner, the very same person who Bannon initially seemed to decry for having met with agents of the Russian government. Apparently, according to the Mueller report, in November of 2016, hedge fund head Rick Gerson, a friend of Kushner's, met with Dmitriev. The Mueller report explains how, quote, Gerson stated he had no formal role in the transition and had no involvement in the Trump campaign other than occasional casual discussions about the campaign with Kushner. After the election, Gerson assisted the transition by arranging meetings for transition officials with former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair and a UAE delegation led by Crown Prince Mohammed, end quote. Interestingly enough, the Crown Prince Mohammed is a reference to none other than Zayed. According to the Mueller report, quote, After his trip to Seychelles, Dmitriev told Gerson that Bannon had asked Prince to meet with Dmitriev and the two had a positive meeting. End quote. Contrary to what Bannon may have claimed, Dmitriev's conversations demonstrate that Bannon had been encouraging of Prince connecting with a close associate and underling of Putin, adding to the growing number of disturbing contacts between members of Trump's inner circle with members of Putin's inner circle. Even though some of these contacts took place after the Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election had already taken place, if anything, they reflect a disgusting legitimization of Putin's authoritarian regime, and while the contents of these meetings remain shrouded in mystery, they very well could have been intended to finalize negotiations between the 2016 Trump campaign and the Russian government after the Russian government played an instrumental role in Trump's ascension to the presidency. In fact... From the limited information that the Mueller report provides about these meetings, it seems as if that is exactly what they were intended to do. As the Mueller report highlights, quote, On January 16, 2017, Dmitriev consolidated the ideas for U.S.-Russia reconciliation that he and Gerson had been discussing into a two-page document, end quote. The Mueller report goes on to emphasize the various points of Dmitriev's document that was largely based around renewed partnership between the United States and Russia. As is explained in the Mueller report, quote, 
on January 18, 2017, Gerson gave a copy of the document to Kushner. Kushner had not heard of Dmitriev at that time. Gerson explained that Dmitriev was the head of RDIF, and Gerson may have alluded to Dmitriev's being well-connected. Kushner placed the document in a file and said he would get it to the right people. Kushner ultimately gave one copy of the document to Bannon and another to Rex Tillerson, end quote. Bannon's connections with Dmitriev and Prince ultimately started a chain reaction of events that led to Kushner being made aware of Dmitriev's efforts to fully unify the United States and the despotic regime that Putin had cultivated within Russia. Considering Bannon's apparent disdain for Kushner's affiliation with agents of the Russian government, it is quite ironic that Bannon's actions ended up getting Kushner effectively acquainted with yet another. Kushner then subsequently shared Dmitriev's incentives with Bannon, thereby effectively immortalizing their co-collaboration, their co-collusion with members of Putin's corrupt and tyrannical inner circle in the tomes of history. The distance and divide that Bannon had tried to drive between himself and Kushner evaporates when one considers their joint connections to Dmitriev. It should be noted as well that I delve into the collusion that Rex Tillerson had with agents and associates of the Russian government in my podcast episode titled Rex. Furthermore, Bannon's Breitbart News website, even oddly, is one of the only American news sites to use Yandex, a Russian search engine. According to the Medium article titled, What's the deal with Breitbart News and Yandex? Israel? Nothing? The FBI were reportedly investigating the right-wing websites of Breitbart and Infowars in their investigations into the Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. If this was not enough to indicate that the Russian government probably had its influence within Breitbart, Breitbart specifically has a Yandex verification identification code. As this article explains, quote, The purpose of adding the Yandex verification identification code meta tag is to allow the owner of a website to prove their ownership to Yandex, giving the owner access to analytic software, search engine optimization, SEO tools, and advertising products. Yandex is not currently commonly used outside of Russia and Eastern European states, end quote. Clearly, this raises some concerns about the relationship that Yandex may have had with Breitbart under Bannon's watch. What makes this even more suspicious is that as this Medium article illustrates, quote, the Yandex meta tag was added to the Breitbart News website between March 30th and March 31st, 2016, at the height of Republican nomination campaigns, end quote. Breitbart was a fully functioning news organization well before the 2016 presidential election. With this in mind, it is quite noteworthy that it was during this crucial period in time that Breitbart, under Bannon's leadership, made the decision to establish such a critical and intimate relationship with Yandex. While Bannon at this point in the 2016 presidential election was not an official part of the Trump campaign, 
he had been a close consultant and supporter of the Trump campaign and had close connections with some of the individuals who were more closely linked to the campaign. Bossy was one such individual. While Bossy would technically not be hired as the deputy campaign manager for the 2016 Trump presidential campaign for a few more months, as is documented in Ted Johnson's Variety article titled, Donald Trump hires David Bossy as deputy campaign manager, John Podesta, the campaign chairman of Clinton's campaign, astutely pointed out that Bossy was an arm of the Trump campaign long before he was officially hired. It stands to reason that Bannon was as well. In fact, according to Woodward, both Bannon and Bossy, as early as 2010, were consulting Trump about his future prospective presidential run. According to Green, Bannon had been a supporter of Trump's racist birther movement years ago, which really was blatantly racist, especially when one considers the fact that there have been white presidents, most notably being Chester Allen Arthur, who have had an infinitely higher likelihood of actually being born outside the United States than Obama, but did not invoke Trump's ire. Bannon had been one of Trump's most significant supporters and accomplices during his controversial and racist pre-presidential years at a time when few other prominent Republican political figures would endorse him. Bannon and Trump had a very close relationship, and despite Trump's occasional mocking of Bannon, Bannon remains a virulent supporter of Trump to this day. This all goes to show that even if Bannon had not been an official member of the 2016 Trump presidential campaign in March of 2016, Breitbart's close alliance with the index could have certainly been a way for the Trump campaign to have made an important connection to the Russian government. Furthermore, the authenticity of Bannon's denouncement of Manafort's dubious dealings can be called into question when one examines the Mueller report, in which it is explained how, even after Manafort resigned from the Trump campaign, he continued to offer advice to various individuals in the campaign, including Bannon. The notion that Bannon was somehow disgusted with Manafort's money laundering and treasonous backdoor meetings with agents of the Russian governments is not a story that holds up when one considers the fact that Bannon remained in contact with Manafort even after Manafort left the Trump campaign. Considering the fact that Manafort provided Kalimnik with internal Trump campaign polling data, as the Mueller report recounts, it is not difficult to imagine that Bannon and Manafort may have discussed their connections to the Russian government. There is, however, no real proof that these connections were discussed in any of Bannon and Manafort's conversations. However, if anything, it demonstrates that Manafort's illegal activities did not repulse Bannon even nearly as much as Bannon wanted the American people to think that they did. In fact, as the Moscow Report article titled Breaking Down the Mueller Report, Steve Bannon, showcases, quote, while Manafort was serving as campaign chairman, he and his deputy, Rick Gates, repeatedly shared internal polling data with their longtime business associate, the alleged Russian intelligence operative, Konstantin Kalimnik, with whom they had previously worked in Ukraine. 
Manafort and Gates also shared with Kalimnik the Trump campaign's plans to target the upper Midwest. According to the report, they did so on the understanding that Kalimnik would pass the information along to Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs with whom they had worked in their previous political work, most notably Oleg Deripaska. According to the Mueller report, Gates continued to send Kalimnik polling data after Manafort left the campaign in August, which means he was doing so during the period in which Bannon served as Trump's campaign CEO, end quote. This implies that it is quite probable that Bannon was aware of the heinous and treasonous exchange of polling data between Manafort and Gates and Kalimnik. This exchange of internal polling data is undeniably one of the prime examples of collusion between the 2016 Trump campaign and the Russian government. The notion that Bannon may have had a hand in this element of the collusion between the Trump 2016 presidential campaign and the Russian government is very troubling. As Mark von Rennenkampf highlights in the Hill article titled, There was Trump-Russia collusion and Trump pardoned the colluder, quote, According to Brad Parscale, Trump's election data guru, the information that Manafort handed directly to Russian intelligence was of critical importance, determining 98% of the campaign's resource allocations, such as spending on TV, radio and social media ads, rallies, field operations, and so on. Indeed, the data was so important that Parscale kept a visualization of the information on his iPad at all times, allowing him to tell then-candidate Trump where to conduct his next rally at a moment's notice. According to the then-Republican-led Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, the ultra-sensitive campaign information that Manafort passed to a Russian spy identified voter bases in blue-collar Democratic-leaning states which Trump could swing, including in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. Moreover, the Russian intelligence officer who received the information was capable of comprehending the complex polling data, end quote. The internal Trump campaign polling data that Manafort and Gates provided to Kalimnik at a time when Bannon was seemingly the Trump campaign CEO was likely intrinsic to the election interference efforts carried out by the Russian government during the 2016 presidential election. This is clear and blatant collusion in order to nefariously manipulate the results of the 2016 presidential election. And it happened with internal Trump campaign polling data at a time when Bannon was the Trump campaign CEO, when Russian hackers ended up targeting these swing states in their election interference efforts. It becomes difficult to believe that Bannon was completely disparate from all of these examples of collusion between the 2016 Trump campaign and the Russian Russian government when he has such close connections to so many of these dubious events. After the results of the 2016 presidential election came in, Bannon, as a member of the Trump transition team, seemingly helped Flynn in coordinating with the Russian government on foreign policy matters. Flynn had indicated to Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak that Trump may lift the sanctions that the United States had imposed on Russia. As is stated in the Mueller report, quote, multiple transition team members were aware that Flynn was speaking with Kislyak that day 
In addition to her conversations with Bannon and Reince Priebus at 4.43pm, McFarland sent an email to transition team members about the sanctions, informing the group that Jen Flynn is talking to Russian ambassador this evening. Less than an hour later, McFarland briefed President-elect Trump. Bannon, Priebus, Sean Spicer, and other transition team members were present. During the briefing, President-elect Trump asked McFarland if the Russians did it, meaning the intrusions intended to influence the presidential election. McFarland said yes, and President-elect Trump expressed doubt it was the Russians. McFarland also discussed potential Russian responses to the sanctions and said Russia's response would be an indicator of what the Russians wanted going forward. End quote. In the Mueller report, McFarland refers to KT McFarland, Flynn's deputy while he was national security advisor. Bannon's coordination with Flynn on this subject matter is expanded upon through the Mueller report, which explains how, quote, Flynn recalled discussing the sanctions with Bannon the next day, and that Bannon appeared to know about Flynn's conversation with Kislyak, end quote. While outgoing United States President Barack Obama's administration was attempting to punish the Russian government for its interference in the 2016 presidential election, Flynn was conspiring with Kislyak to undermine this effort. Bannon, for his part, at the very least, was aware of the conversations that Flynn was having with Kislyak. However, the amount of exposure that Bannon had to this subject and the number of interactions he had with Flynn seems to indicate that perhaps he was even advising Flynn on his collaboration with Kislyak against the Obama administration. The Mueller report also indicates that Kushner and Flynn attended a meeting with Kislyak in Trump Tower in 2016, during which Kushner specifically requested for Kislyak to identify someone who had direct access to Putin. This was a meeting that Bannon was actually invited to, but did not attend. Bannon made a wise choice in not attending this meeting at Trump Tower. However, his invitation speaks volumes about his acute awareness of the collaboration between Trump's inner circle and Putin's inner circle at a time when Putin was increasing his hostility to the United States and many other NATO and European countries. Upon entering the White House as Trump's official chief strategist, Bannon took an active role in covering up the collusion between the 2016 Trump presidential campaign and the Russian government. According to the Moscow Report article titled Breaking Down the Mueller Report, Steve Bannon, quote, while Bannon was in the White House, he was involved in efforts to help cover up the Trump administration's ties to Russia. This began during the transition when he was one of several high-ranking campaign advisors with whom Hope Hicks consulted about releasing a statement denying that any campaign representatives were in touch with any foreign entities during the campaign, end quote. Bannon knew this was a lie. There is clear and apparent evidence that he was aware of multiple campaign representatives that were in contact with foreign entities. Nevertheless, Bannon proceeded to lie and neglect his duties and responsibilities to the American people by misleading them. As is exemplified within the Moscow Project article titled Breaking Down the Mueller Report, Steve Bannon, quote, Since Bannon left the White House in August 2017, Bannon has dedicated himself to advancing far-right interests in Europe 
In the process, he has cultivated ties to several politicians embroiled in controversies involving support from the Russian government. For example, in March 2018, Bannon traveled to France to speak at an event with Marine Le Pen. Le Pen's political party, the National Rally Party, formerly National Front, have received significant funding from a Kremlin-linked bank and benefited from Russian efforts to hack and release her main opponent's emails shortly before the 2017 French presidential election. Le Pen also famously traveled to Russia during her campaign to meet with Putin. Bannon has also publicly supported Matteo Salvini, a Eurosceptic Italian politician, sometimes called the European Donald Trump, whose aides were recently revealed to have attended a meeting with Kremlin-linked officials to discuss a business deal by which the Kremlin would secretly finance Salvini's campaign for the European Parliament. Prior to the revelation, Bannon had met and done an interview with the top aide present at the meeting. Other right-wing Russia-linked politicians with whom Bannon has been linked include Hungary's Viktor Orban and the UK's Nigel Farage. Bannon has also been involved in a recently aborted effort to create an academy for far-right politicians in an abandoned Italian monastery, an endeavor that has led him to work with, among others, Alexei Komov, who works for the Kremlin-connected Russian oligarch Konstantin Malovev. End quote. It certainly is quite possible, however, that Bannon did not actively seek out leaders and political figures around the world that are associated with Putin and the Russian government. It is more likely that Bannon's professed ideology just so happens to coincide with that of Putin's authoritarian regime. In the brink, Bannon has a conversation with Nigel Farage, the former leader of the United Kingdom Independence Party. According to the Guardian article titled, Nigel Farage, I Admire Vladimir Putin, Farage has stated that Putin is the world leader that he has the most admiration for. In this scene from The Brink, Bannon tells Farage, quote, If you're interested, what I'd like to do is set up something, and I'll fund it somehow, that I think, and I think you're the perfect guy. We help knit together this populist nationalist movement throughout the world. Because guys in Egypt are coming to me, the Modi's guys in India, Duterte, you know, and, and we get Orban and we are somehow some sort of convening authority for conferences and stuff like that. So we can get ideas out there, end quote. According to Zach Beecham's Vox article titled Europe's Other Threat to Democracy, Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, and the man whom Bannon was referring to, is described as being a steadfast ally of Putin, who broadcasted pro-Russian propaganda and banned arms transfers from Hungarian soil to Ukraine while Putin was simultaneously conducting his vicious and illegal invasion of Ukraine. As such alliances demonstrate, while Bannon may have not sought out political figures such as Farage and Orban due to their inexcusable condonement of Putin, it is noteworthy that Farage, Orban, and Bannon all just so happen to have sympathetic links to Putin. One of the most telling quotes about Bannon that has defined the man for me just so happens to be the very first words that I ever uttered on Politics with Paxton in my very first episode, The Destruction of the Ministry of State. This quote was one spoken by Tom Mount, the former head of Universal Pictures, according to Green. Mount's description of Bannon reads, 
Quote, he was constantly telling stories about great warriors of the past. Like Attila the Hun, people who had slain empires. It's one thing to be interested in the triumphs of military history. It's another thing to obsess over them. Victory at all costs is a dangerous way to look at the world. End quote. It seems quite readily apparent that Bannon's obsession with victory at all costs led him down a path of colluding with the Russian government in order to secure victory in the 2016 presidential election. Bannon believed in the ideology of victory at all costs. However, because of his ardent desire to secure victory at any cost imaginable, he betrayed his own belief in what he knew deep down to be true. The fact that conspiring with the Russian government in order to get Trump elected was treasonous and unpatriotic. The story of Bannon's duplicitous deceit could have ended there. However, even up until this very day, Bannon remains a firm advocate for illegal and dubious activities. In fact, Bannon played a crucial role in one of the most treasonous and unpatriotic events in the history of the United States, the Capitol Insurrection on January 6th, 2021, which was intended to keep defeated former United States President Donald Trump in office and prevent incoming United States President Joe Biden from taking office. Trump's vice president, Mike Pence, was responsible for counting the electoral votes and announcing Biden as the winner, despite Trump's insistence that Pence had some obscure and non-existent vice presidential power to declare Trump as the winner of the 2020 presidential election, even though this was an election that Trump clearly lost. As Chris Silliza emphasizes in the CNN article titled, Steve Bannon was knee-deep in January 6, quote, in the days leading up to the January 6 riot at the U.S. Capitol that left five people dead and more than 100 police officers wounded, one man may have been whispering in Donald Trump's ear more than any other. Steve Bannon. In the waning days of December, Bannon was on the phone with Trump, urging the president to make January 6, the date of the official certification on the Electoral College vote by Congress, a sort of final stand in his war on non-existent voter fraud. End quote. Revelations such as these make it apparent exactly where Trump's fervent support for the violent insurrectionists came from. Silliza pulls some quotes from Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's book, Peril, such as, quote, You gotta call Pence off the expletive ski slopes and get him back here today. This is a crisis, Bannon said, referring to the vice president who was vacationing in Vail, Colorado. End quote. Quote, Bannon told Trump to focus on January 6th. That was the moment for a reckoning. End quote. Quote, People are going to go, what the expletive is going on here? Bannon believed. We're going to bury Biden on January 6th. Expletive, bury him. End quote. Bannon had a real position of power and influence due to his quite significant positions in both the 2016 Trump presidential campaign as well as the Trump White House. However, Bannon used the remaining influence that he had with Trump in order to help orchestrate a violent insurrection to disrupt the presidential transfer of power 
for the first time in all of American history. The notion that Silla's erases that Bannon was the person who had Trump's ear the most and was the most influential for Trump in the days preceding January 6th may very well explain some of Trump's deeply troubling behavior on January 6th. According to the testimony that Cassidy Hutchinson, a former aide to Trump's White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, provided under oath to the committee in the House of Representatives investigating the insurrection on January 6th, Secret Service official Tony Ornato told Hutchinson that when Trump was compelled to enter his limo, quote, he was under the impression from Mr. Meadows that the off-the-record movement to the Capitol was still possible and likely to happen, but that Bobby had more information. So once the president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby, he thought they were going up to the Capitol. And when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, you don't have the assets to do it, it's not secure, we're going back to the West Wing, the president had a very strong angry response to that. Tony described him as being irate, end quote. When the Secret Service refused to cowtail to Trump's demands to join the insurrectionists at the Capitol, according to Hutchinson, quote, the president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm and said, Sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel, and Mr. when Mr. Ornato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles, end quote. The very violence that Trump committed against the Secret Service could probably be traced back to Bannon's manipulations. Bannon was quite possibly the single one person who influenced Trump the most towards advocating for the insurrection on January 6th. When Trump physically assaulted the Secret Service in an effort to travel to the Capitol with his fellow insurrectionists, perhaps it was Bannon's voice that was ringing through his head, telling him that this was the moment to bury Biden and perhaps... Pence along with him. After all, Hutchinson's testimony did reveal that Trump believed that Pence deserved to be dead. Bannon reacted quite intensely to Hutchinson's testimony in the War Room Pandemic episode titled War Room Battleground Episode 83, The Lies, Material False Statements of Hutchinson, Davis, The Unprofessionalism of Jan 6, The Outing of Liz Cheney, 14% of independents support Biden's handling of the economy in which he coined a juvenile nickname for Hutchinson, in much the same ways how Trump very immaturely berates his political rivals, this nickname of Bannon's being Two Sugars Light Hutchinson. Perhaps the irony that Trump himself used to demean Bannon by calling him Sloppy Steve was not apparent to Bannon. Bannon knew that the insurrection at the Capitol building was coming before it actually happened. As the PBS NewsHour video titled Watch Rep Cheney Presents Evidence That Steve Bannon Knew What Would Happen at Jan 6 documents, Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney explains that, quote, Based on the committee's investigation, it appears that Mr. Bannon had substantial advanced knowledge of the plans for January 6 and likely had an important role in formulating those plans. Mr. Bannon was in the war room at the Willard on January 6. He also appears to have detailed knowledge 
regarding the president's efforts to sell millions of Americans the fraud that the election was stolen. End quote. According to Dan Friedman's article in Mother Jones titled, Leaked Audio Before Election Day, Bannon Said Trump Planned to Falsely Claim Victory, there are recordings of Bannon when he can be heard stating on October 31st, 2020, that Trump was planning on declaring victory on election night, regardless of whether or not Trump actually won the election. As Friedman documents, quote, What Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory, but that doesn't mean he's a winner. Bannon, laughing, told the group, end quote. Bannon, being Trump's former chief strategist, naturally was seemingly excited by the strategy that Trump had concocted in order to illegally remain in power. As Friedman highlights, Bannon, quote, emphasized that in 2020, Republicans were more likely to vote in person, casting ballots that, in many states, would be counted first. Democrats disproportionately voted by mail. Their ballots would take days to tally in a number of states. That meant that when it came to public perceptions about who was winning, Democrats would have a natural disadvantage, Bannon said, and Trump's going to take advantage of it. That's our strategy. He's going to declare himself a winner, end quote. This strategy, which in many ways preyed upon Americans' legitimate fears of the coronavirus pandemic, is really quite malicious. Bannon even was aware that this strategy that Trump was prepared to follow would likely result in violence, which it did on January 6th. As is indicated by Friedman, quote, as a result, any chance for a peaceful resolution of this is probably gone, Bannon said, because the other three alternatives are either Biden's up slightly and Trump says he stole it, right, and he's not leaving, or it's undefined and we can't figure out who's leading and Trump says he's stealing it and he's not leaving. Or Trump's leading, which is the one where they're going to burn the city down. Bannon expressed the belief that Trump actually winning would lead to violence by the left. But he also said that Trump falsely claiming he'd won a strategy that Bannon was cheering on would probably cause violence too. And Bannon emphasized that election night would mark the start of a battle for power in which Trump would try to stop the votes of people who opposed him from being counted, while Democrats would try to use invalid ballots to defeat him. Democrats, Bannon claimed, steal elections all the time. Election day 2020 would not be like others, Bannon said. This is a revolution, he explained. This election just triggers more fighting. End quote. Bannon. Being aware of the violence that would result from his support of the strategy to fraudulently claim that Trump won the 2020 presidential election is very disturbing when one considers how vehemently Bannon remained in support of this strategy. This was a strategy that ultimately led to people losing their lives. It was a strategy that never should have even been remotely considered. Nevertheless, Bannon embraced his namesake as the former chief strategist and incessantly pushed the false narrative that Trump actually won the 2020 election, despite knowing that this was a path that would ultimately result in violence. As Ali Velshi explains in the MSNBC video titled, Loose-Lipped Steve Bannon Suggests Another Facet of Trump's Central Role in Capital Attack, this audio of Bannon is really quite unsettling. 
as Valshi astutely showcases, this audio seems to indicate that, quote, Trump had formulated a plot to stay in power if he lost the election and began carrying that plot out on election night. And based on what we learned in yesterday's hearing, there's reason to believe that Steve Bannon wasn't just spitballing when he was describing Trump's plans to deny the election results. He may very well have heard about those plans from Donald Trump himself, because that is certainly what seems to have happened a couple months later with Trump's plans for January 6th. End quote. Velshi then proceeds to play a clip of Representative Stephanie Murphy describing how, quote, the committee has learned from the White House phone logs that the president spoke to Steve Bannon, his close advisor, at least twice on January 5th. The first conversation they had lasted for 11 minutes, end quote. Right after that first conversation with Trump, Bannon went on his podcast, War Room Pandemic, to declare that, quote, we're on, as I say, the point of attack, the point of attack tomorrow, end quote. The point of attack? The point of attack sounds like the words that a revolutionary would use. Someone who wants to disregard legal precedent in order to attain victory at all costs. The point of attack are also not generally the words that tend to be used when describing a simple, peaceful protest. Despite playing an inexcusable role in the outbreak of violence at the Capitol on January 6th, Bannon has sought to escape from any repercussions, legal or otherwise, involving his role in the insurrectionist movement. Throughout this past season of Politics with Pakistan, I have been examining many of the injustices within the criminal justice system here in the United States. In that same spirit... Bannon escaping consequences for so many of his actions definitely reflects a significant discrepancy regarding who is targeted by the American criminal justice system. Even still, these consequences have eventually caught up with him. According to John Santucci, Will Staken, and Tal Axelrod's ABC News article titled, Bannon now says he will testify for Jan 6 committee after Trump's okay with contempt trial looming. Quote, Steve Bannon, a former top advisor in Donald Trump's White House, recently told the House panel investigating the Capitol riot that he would be willing to testify since Trump now says he won't cite executive privilege, end quote. However, as Santushi, Staken, and Axelrod elaborate, quote, both the House committee and federal prosecutors who sought to speak with Bannon have said that the executive privilege claims never covered him since the Jan 6, 2021 insurrection took place long after Bannon had left his post as chief White House strategist in 2017, end quote. Bannon's proclamation that Trump will not use executive privilege to stop Bannon from testifying represents yet another blatant example of Bannon's duplicitous nature. Bannon is seemingly trying to set a disturbing precedent that Trump somehow still has executive privilege powers that can shield Trump and some of his allies from testifying before Congress. While operating under the pretext of generosity before Congress, Bannon is actually still fighting for Trump's interest. Bannon presents himself as the ultimate hero of the populist movement, while allegedly simultaneously scamming his very own supporters out of their own money. 
Bannon presents himself as a hyper-nationalist who always puts America first and would never collude with foreign powers while simultaneously working diligently with many agents of the Russian government to promote both his interests as well as their own. And even now, Bannon is presenting himself as an individual who is kindly agreeing to cooperate with the congressional investigation into the January 6th insurrection while simultaneously working to subvert said investigation by promoting Trump's very own interests. When Bannon first came onto the major political scene as a prominent member of Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, it was believed that he, while an ardent conservative, was at least more genuine about his beliefs and goals than someone like his predecessor Manafort, who really was primarily motivated to work with the Trump 2016 presidential campaign out of a desire to get whole with Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. However, Bannon's actions since then have proven that he has been just as disingenuous, greedy, and subversive as Manafort ever was. If there is anything that Bannon believes in, it is subversion or the destruction of the administrative state, an ideology politics with Paxton delves into quite extensively in the first podcast episode. Even people who have spoken to Bannon in real life have identified the facade that is Bannon's supposed undying commitment to the populist ideals. In the brink, Paul Lewis, a journalist from The Guardian, confronted Bannon about suggestions that Bannon was using anti-Semitic dog whistles. Bannon told him, quote, you can't possibly believe those are dog whistles, end quote. Lewis responded with, quote, do you know, I think you, um, I genuinely don't think you could not believe that they are, end quote. Bannon exasperatedly exclaimed, quote, oh my God, come on, end quote. Lewis emphasized how, quote, I don't sort of think it's the trivial sort of joking thing and you do this sort of smirk and it's sort of uncomfortable for me because it's serious, end quote. When Bannon tried to offer up a response, Lewis cut him off to reiterate that, quote, it's serious offensive dog whistle politics. I think you know it, Steve, end quote. I think you know it, Steve. These simple words provide the ultimate condemnation of Bannon's two-faced mentality that he rarely ever offers up his own genuine beliefs, masquerading offensive dog whistle politics as the new normal and standard political rhetoric. One must not be fooled by Bannon's supposedly populist stance. Bannon is not genuine. His duplicitous actions have proven time and time again to be a danger to the entire country, especially when it comes to normalizing hateful ideologies and rhetoric. After all, according to Unhinged, a book written by Amorosa Manigault Newman, the former director of communications for the Office of Public Liaison in the Trump White House, Newman describes how, quote, I had an interesting conversation with Bannon and asked him if the rumors of his being a racist were true. He said no. He explained, the same way you are a proud African-American woman, I am a proud white man. What's the difference between my pride and your pride? He asked. I said, hate defines white supremacy. He didn't back down and gave an impassioned defense of the alt-right. By disingenuously presenting white supremacist ideology as nothing more than the collective pride of white individuals, Bannon was dangerously working to normalize these hateful ideologies. 
And if Lewis's assessment of Bannon was accurate, which it seems to have been, then Bannon knows that his normalizing of hateful ideologies really are just meant to be dog whistles to radical alt-right groups, thereby putting many American citizens into increased peril. I think you know it, Steve. Bannon was chosen by Trump to be his chief strategist in the White House. However, it is about time that the American people realize exactly who and what Bannon is strategizing for. If there are two words that can aptly describe Bannon, they are not chief strategist. They are not sloppy Steve. No. The two words that most appropriately describe exactly who Bannon is have to be treasonous and unpatriotic. Thank you for listening to Politics with Paxton. Please follow me on Twitter at PoliticsWPaxton, where you will find all the latest news, updates, and episodes of Politics with Paxton.